from the high desert in the great American Southwest. I bid you all top of the morning, evening, morning, whatever it is in your time zone, in all these many, many time zones stretching from the Tahitian and Hawaiian island chains in the west, eastward to the Caribbean, in the U.S. Virgin Islands, south into South America, north all the way to the pole, and worldwide on the Internet, this is Coast to Coast AM. Good morning. I'm Mark Bell. Coming up shortly, Mark Furman, Detective Mark Furman, now retired. It should be very, very interesting. I'd like to welcome WERC in Birmingham, Alabama. Big one down there, 960 on the dial. 5,000 non-directional watts obviously serving the entire region, but from Birmingham, Alabama. So welcome, WERC. Glad to have you on board. The only piece of news I see that really knocked my socks off was about the one, two, three, four, five, six story on Reuters tonight that just cleared the wire. It's going to run on 60 minutes this Sunday. Check this out. Titled, Russia said, missing many nukes. This'll slay you. Pun intended. Former Russian National Security Advisor Alexander Lebed says the Russian military has lost track of more than 100 suitcase-sized nuclear bombs, any one of which could kill up to 100,000 people. In an interview with CBS News' 60 Minutes program to be aired this Sunday, Lebed said the devices, quote, are not under the control of the armed forces of Russia, end quote. He said the devices made to look like suitcases could be detonated by one person within half an hour. Levitt said he did not know what had happened to the missing bombs. So that would be 100 of them, folks, the size of a suitcase. And that really bears a little thought, uh, particularly in view of the suicide bombings uh, in Israel yesterday and uh, many, many other days as well. If there's a hundred out there, you'll, uh, you've got to imagine that Hamas eventually will get their hands on at least one. Let's talk for a second about Ruthie and Larry Brown and their company, which is GMX. It is a magnetic water conditioner, and it works. <laughs> Can I tell you it works? People think there is no way magnetic arrays clamped to pipes, which is what this is, could can possibly condition water, because they say <laughs> there's no way it could pull it through the, the pipe. Well, the way it works is not that way at all. It actually affects the minerals as the water flows through the pipe, and it simply changes their properties magnetically so they don't stick to anything. And when they, <laughs> they don't stick to anything, you've effectively got hard water licked. Anyway, look, it comes with a 90-day money-back guarantee and a lifetime warranty, and it works. They guarantee it. So take my word for it. Try it. And if you find I lied, which I'm not, you get your money back. Period. The number is 1-800-406-0469. That's 1-800-406-0469.
888-379-2969. Are you having arthritis pain? Would you like to stop that pain in your joints now? Glucosamine and chondroitin sulfate can help with the arthritis assist formula. You can get them at a fraction of what you pay in stores. Plus, the arthritis assist formula contains another revolutionary nutrient that's helped many people in Europe. Gelatin. Gelatin's full of the same kind of protein found in cartilage, the stuff that cushions your joints so they don't hurt. As we age, most of us get arthritis and our cartilage begins getting brittle. Studies show that gelatin nutritionally supports cartilage regeneration. Gelatin along with glucosamine and chondroitin sulfate, are found in the arthritis assist formula. Stop those aches and pains without drugs by using all-natural arthritis assist. Here's the offer. Order a 90-day supply of arthritis assist, and you'll get a pain relief cream that provides immediate relief to your joints absolutely free. Call 1-800-232-5665. It's guaranteed to work or your money back, and you can't get it in stores. Call now. 1-800-2325-665. You've got nothing to lose but the pain. All right. Uh, here from Idaho is uh, retired Detective Mark Furman. Uh, welcome to the show. Well, thanks, sir. Great to have you. Um, how's retirement? Well, it's pretty hectic. I don't, I don't think I'd ever even consider it retirement yet. Uh, uh-huh. i got more on my plate now than I did when I was on the job, I think. Yeah, I know the feeling. Um, I I used to work at a radio station, Mark, and uh, then they built me a studio here at home, and they said, gee, you'll have so much time, you're not commuting 120 miles anymore. And now I'm where everybody can find me, and I have no time. And you have no place to hide. No place to hide. That's exactly right. Um, So you're staying busy. You're speaking, I guess, engagements, that kind of thing. Well, uh, you know, not really. I, I did quite a bit of media uh, during the launch of my book, about six weeks on TV, and then I did probably, I'd say, upwards of 250 radio shows. Wow. And, you know, after that, uh, I immediately started researching for another book. And at the same time, I've been doing book signings for this book, and I continuously do Radio shows, you know, not as frequent, but uh, but I still do that. Murder in Brentwood is the book, and I'm sure we'll talk about it in detail. How long were you uh, in the police force? Twenty years. Twenty years. To the day. To the day. To the minute. Really? Oh yeah. I I always said that uh, that I would retire at, at twenty uh, twenty years and twenty seconds, <laughs> and, and not because I didn't love the job. Uh, I just uh, figured that you know you do your time. Uh, you learn something, and then you move to it, so you have another uh, career in front of you. I figured I had another 20 years as a sure. as, uh, a private investigator for maybe a corporation or insurance company. How how much of it was for LAPD? All 20. All 20. When I said 20 years, 20 minutes, I came into the academy at 8 o'clock in the morning, August 4, 1975. I, I signed my papers 8 o'clock in the morning, August 4, 1995. Wow. Well, you know what you wanted to do then, and you did it, and that's good. Um, you, you've, you say you've got another career, or you want another career, or you can have another career. What would it be? Uh, you really going to go into some sort of uh, private detective work? Well, it, kind of a long way around the barn. Instead of now working for a corporation as a as an investigator, um, what I plan on doing, I am currently. Uh, investigating and researching an unsolved homicide to write a nonfiction book, which I hope uh, will bring that case to a conclusion. Wow. So, in essence, uh, 
I'm actually being more of a detective than I was uh, or I could have been with a private corporation. So uh, I'm doing the same thing, really. It's it's what I know, and I don't, I don't I don't have any reason to deviate from that. How long were you on the force uh, with uh, Los Angeles before you became a detective? Thirteen years I spent in the street. Thirteen years. That's a long time in the street. That's a long time in the street. Yeah, I did a lot of things in the street, though. I actually worked as a detective after my first three years uh, in uh, gangs for uh, about almost three years. And that was a federally funded gang program where we had teams, three teams in this gang unit. We really just took everything from the time we're at the murder scene. We just worked as a team to track down all the clues, all the follow-ups, all the interviews, all the investigation, all the intelligence, and all the enforcement, and all the search warrants, and whatever it led to. So we worked as a team. So actually I had a lot of detective experience there, and then I worked a narcotics task force and surveillance units and, and, and the such. So it wasn't just uniform. All right. Uh, I, you mentioned gangs, uh, since you worked gangs. I interviewed country star Merle Haggard for five hours the other night. We're talking about Las Vegas, and I'm just over the hill from Las Vegas. Years ago, uh, Mark, in Las Vegas, we didn't have a gang problem. No gang problem. And the reason we had no gang problem was because the guys who ran Las Vegas generally took those kind of problems out into the desert. They were dealt with pretty much that way. No gang problem. I know exactly what you're saying. You know, in Vegas, if you come in early in the morning when the sun's just starting to come up, mm -hmm. you look over the desert, there's all these kind of lumps. <laughs> you kind of wonder what they are sometimes. <laughs> oh, I don't wonder. Uh, but things changed, you know. Uh, we Las Vegas became a, a sort of a combination gambling, gaming town, Disneyland. And uh, politics changed, sheriffs changed, things changed. Now there's gangs. It's like everywhere else. But there was a day when that problem and a lot of others just didn't happen, and if they did, they didn't last long. Uh, what, from your perspective, could, could be done about gangs? I mean, if you had a free hand, and I'm not suggesting you would settle it as they used to uh, here in Las Vegas, but how, well, how would you deal with it? Well, I think the first thing is I really saw the trend. When I first went into a gang unit, it was 1977, and to my knowledge, it was the first federally funded gang unit in the country. And what we found was gangs predominantly then, it was a neighborhood territorial type of structure. Sure. Uh, kids that maybe weren't great students or didn't have a great home life or they were criminals already, they grouped together and called themselves gangs for nothing more than protection and, and courage. And it became a neighborhood thing. But with the onset of crack cocaine, all the rules changed. And those rules became uh, money was no object. Before, in 1977, you would have gang members with single-barrel shotguns that were sawed off, single-barrel 22s, Saturday night specials. By 1983, 384, 85, we're seeing gang members with AK-47s and 5,000 rounds, yep. uh, very expensive handguns, and they wouldn't keep them. they just drop them wherever they were. They had no problem uh, leaving their weapons. They had more. 
we had a real money problem, and then there was no more neighborhood or territorial issue. This was making money, which started gang wars, which started people joining gangs for protection and then power. And it just it just just toppled over itself. It was just incredible. So the whole nature of gangs changed, and cocaine did that. Yeah, and at the same time, the federal government uh, put a lot of pressure on organized crime, which did have control of a lot of the narcotics trafficking in the country and how their own enforcement of narcotics would be enforced, if you can understand what I mean, a, a, a actual a police force on criminality. Sure. So we had a lot of things going on at the same time that, that really didn't help, help out middle-class America a whole lot. Um, and then I guess it became, as you said, a, a battle for territory and uh, what they did control they were selling in and what they wanted to control they fought for. Yeah, and, you know, the the downside of that is the people that lived in all these communities are the losers. Yeah. That's their battlefield. So if you had a free hand and they said, tell us what to do about gangs, what approach would you take? How? Well, if we're not talking about the constitutionality of it all, uh, I would probably say um, you'd have to pass some type of a law uh, about uh, the collection of people at certain locations or times, uh, the dress that they could wear. I think the first thing is where it all buds and starts is schools. I think all public schools should have a, a dress code. That dress code should be uh-huh. one type of shirt. One type of pants, one type of skirt, one type of blouse. You eliminate the individuality there. It sounds very institutionalized, but uh, that eliminates really a recruitment of gangs. It also breaks down their identity. Well, there was almost an attempt uh, to do a lot of that with the RICO laws, wasn't there? Well, there was an attempt, but, you know, the same people that don't want their kids involved in gangs are screaming the loudest about, you know, we're not going to have our kids do this or that, and you can't do this or that. You know, you have to give in a little bit if you want to get something out. You know, we've already got a problem. We've got to do something to just argue back and forth and to do nothing and to try nothing. All right. You, you said that what was driving the gangs now was the narcotics, crack probably, mostly but a lot of other narcotics. A lot of people say, legalize narcotics. End the drug war. You put the gangs out of business. Oh, you just put them right back in. How so? Well, not only the gangs, but you just you just gave a, uh, an injection into uh, organized crime. I'll just give you an example. You have a dealer, and this dealer's, we'll call, let's call him a mid-level. He deals in pure ounces sure. of cocaine. Today, August 4th, we have the laws that we have right now, and it's illegal. And that ounce, let's just say for all intents and purposes, that pure ounce costs him $1,200. Okay. You legalize it, that pure ounce now becomes cheaper. A lot cheaper. Now he's now he's dealing in pounds because now he can afford it. Now, not only that is, now you have drugs that are controlled by the state. When they're controlled by the state, there's a lot of there's going to be a lax attitude towards the enforcement of even though the illegal 
sale. And not only that is you look at all the people that maybe are standing on the fence, and the only thing that keeps them from using narcotics is the law sure. or the way society looks at them. A lot of those people are going to jump in. It's legal now. Yeah, a lot of those Saturday night parties uh, are going to turn into cocaine fests. And uh, you know, it, it's interesting. It's, you know, I've I've never been a narcotics user. I've never even I've never even smoked a cigarette. Um, I've just never been interested. In it. And the one thing that when you get in arguments with people or discussions, I don't care however you cut it, you know, they say, "Well, alcohol." Well, you know, when I go in. To a Mexican restaurant and have some chips and salsa, and I have a beer with lunch. I don't go into that place to get drunk. I have a beer and I walk out. Sure. When you use a narcotic, that I, I haven't found one person yet that's told me that it really tastes good, or they really love the smell, or it really makes them feel nice and full. It, it's one of these things is they're after the high. The high, sure. So you have a lot of people out there that are going to be doing things quite legally that uh, they're probably not responsible enough to be doing. What about pot? Do you separate that at all? No, I, I don't because it's the same thing. Uh, is somebody going to tell me to eat this stuff and it's really a good meal? Uh, they're doing it to get high, and I don't care how well they can operate themselves or a car or anything else. Uh, it It's still detracting from... Uh, productivity, responsibility, uh, common sense, and, and we really don't need it. We've got enough with alcohol. And it's, it's, you know, it's it's really unfortunate. But when you, if you want to compare alcohol to drugs, and you say, well, why not legalize drugs? Well, you know, you eliminate the alcohol. You don't legalize the drugs. So you might even be in favor of uh, another prohibition on alcohol. Well, we know that didn't work. And I'm not in favor of that. What I'm, I'm just using it as, as an example that it's not going to work. It's the it's the old thing where you have a group of people of 20 people that get a certain privilege in a corporation, and then 250 people see this privilege and go to management and say, "We want this privilege because they have it." Well, they're going to take it away from the 20 before they give it to the 250. That's well, common sense. you were right. Prohibition didn't work, and so far as I can see right now, the drug war is not working. Why? Well, you know, you've got first we're outnumbered, we're outmoneyed, and we're outgunned. Um, that's a big problem. Uh, there's so much money in in drug trafficking, and now heroin's making a comeback. Yeah, it is. It's, why? Why is it making a comeback? You know, it's a, it's a good question. You have that answer. We ignored it. I can remember in the 70s, we used to go down every day. We're working uniform. We'd grab a hype, a heroin addict, take him to the station, see if he's under the influence, get information from him, write search warrants, do a dope pad or do a burglar's pad or something. Well, now they ignore heroin because they made it a misdemeanor. Heroin is a misdemeanor? In possession, internal possession, in other words, usage where you're under the influence oh. is a misdemeanor in Los Angeles. Wow. So, you know, that is that is the open door to narcotics enforcement is getting a user and having something to hold over his head. I take it you would prefer the laws, for example, in my state, I'm in Nevada, possession of uh, marijuana is a felony. 
Well, you know, uh, yes, and I'll tell you why. Because it's a great enforcement tool. And by that I mean you bring somebody in with a small percentage of marijuana, you might be able to work that suspect to either give you a dealer of cocaine, right? Uh, some type of a robber, a burglar, a receiver of stolen property. You know, you could really work it into a lot of things. You bring somebody in where marijuana is a misdemeanor and mostly, almost always, a ticketable offense under a certain amount, you don't have a hook. You just break down a lot of the uh, ability of the policemen to work the streets. A lot of people criticize deals, you know, uh, as you just said, uh, that you've got the leverage. You've got somebody, you've got a felony holding it over their head. They're going to give you information, and they know they're going away for a while. Uh, but a lot of people criticize those deals. You get them in there, and you literally cut them loose for giving you the next guy in the food chain. Well, yes and no. Um, not necessarily, you know, I'll, I'll give you an example. If he's on probation or parole, he cannot do a deal with you. He gets booked. If he's not on probation or parole, you can't make any promises, so you can tell him, I'm going to book you because you're under the influence. I'll talk to the DA. But... You give up one person, or else I'm not going to say anything to the DA. And uh, th there's a lot of other ways to work a guy, too. You know, you take him off the street, and they've got something that is a decision of yours, uh, a decision that you don't have to book somebody. Mm -hmm. uh, you make that decision, and uh, you make that decision because of getting a bigger fish. And it's not really a deal. That's... That's work in the streets, and it's it's networking. It's the same thing as a salesman does. You know, you're after the bigger fish because that's the one that's uh, trickling down all the dope. All right. Uh, hang tight, Mark. Uh, we're at the bottom of the hour. You've got a rest. I shall do the same, and stations will do whatever it is they do during this period of time. I'm not exactly sure about that. My guest is uh, retired detective Mark Furman. And we've got a lot to talk about with him, including what it's like to be a cop. From the high desert, I'm Art Bell, and this is Coast to Coast AM. of the Rockies at 1-800-618-8255, 1-800-618-8255, east of the Rockies at 1-800-825-5033, 1-800-825-5033, this is the CBC Radio Network. That's who we are. Good morning, everybody. Great to be here. Mark Furman is my guest. Yes. The Mark Furman, retired detective. His book, Murder in Brentwood, we'll get around to that. I want to talk to you for a second about bad weather. You know, we've got bad weather 
actually here. Not just coming, but here. Thankfully, here it dried up uh, this day, but more on the way. When the weather gets bad, as you well know it's going to, you're going to want, among other things, you know, like water and food and the basics, flashlights, you're going to want information, and the Beijing Free Play Radio can sure deliver that. This was designed by a fellow named Trevor Bayliss in Britain. It's manufactured in South Africa, and I must tell you, it is built like a tank. It's a full-size portable radio with a crank on the side. Crank! It uses human power. doesn't plug into the wall, does not use batteries. As a matter of fact, there's no place to even put batteries. You turn the crank for 30 seconds, and this radio plays at full room volume, AM, FM, or shortwave, for 30 seconds minutes. So obviously when the power goes out, you're not out of business if you have a Beijing. And a Beijing should be in every home in America, the way it's shaping up weather-wise. They're just one nineteen ninety-five. We've begun to call them the El Nino Radio. <laughs> the number to call in the morning at 7.30 to get one of these for your very own is 1-800-522-8863. The Z Crane Company at 1-800-522-8863. And the other item, too much weight. I'll tell you what, walk down the street, any street in America. Look at Americans. We eat too well. We eat too much of the wrong thing. And, boy, there's a lot of overweight people out there. How would you like to lose an average of 8 to 10 pounds in the next month, guaranteed? Fiber always helps sweet fat out of your digestive tract, all fiber. But this new fiber, which comes from shellfish, natural of course, uh, chitosan, sweeps out fat at ten times the rate of any other fiber. Hence, in this product, chitoslim, you get this remarkable guarantee, and that is eat as you normally do. No stimulants, remember it's natural, and either you lose 8 to 10 pounds in the next month or you get all your money back, all your money back. And by the way, when you order a 90-day supply of Kytoslim, you get an antioxidant moisturizing cream free of charge. If you don't lose the poundage, you, uh, you get your money back and keep the cream. So they'd go broke very quickly if what they said wasn't true. Can't get it in stores, and your money comes back if it doesn't work. Call 1-800-557-4627. That's 1-800-557-4627. Back now to Idaho and uh, Mark Furman. Uh, welcome back. Well, thanks, sir. Um, how did you last 20 years, Mark? Carefully. <laughs> you know, it's a, it's a good question, really. Yes, it, it, it really is, because uh, I spent a year dispatching Monterey Seaside as, uh, you know, as a police dispatcher, and I, I had a lot of friends who were cops, and they, the ones that last have to be a very different breed. Yeah, I think you have to, I think you have to be somewhat of a, uh, not a chameleon, but you have, to, you have to adapt. It's almost like it's a metamorphosis. Uh, adapt with, you know growing older and society getting sicker because you've seen more of it you realize one uh, you keep going out there and, and uh, trying your hardest and doing good jobs and catching bad guys uh, 
and there's five more bad guys for every one that you bring in every year. It just keeps going up and up. And, you know, you 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 see the real bad part of, uh, of mankind, and, and you want to see the good part. So you're in really two extremes. Cops are, are, are great guys for parties. They're great guys for... Uh, vacations. They're great guys to be around, but uh, I think we're we're trying to see a whole lot of the good in just that uh, two weeks to a month a year we have on vacation time to make up for all the things we see during the rest of the year. Well, that takes its toll. There's been a change. When you first went in in '75, uh, and even earlier than that. You know, if a guy was gonna down on his luck or something, he was gonna go knock over a 7-Eleven or a little store. I tell this story a lot because it's true. He'd walk in, stick a gun in the guy's face, say, give me your cash. The guy would give him the cash, shaking. And he'd back out of the store, get in a getaway car, and take off. Today, uh, it doesn't happen quite that way. He goes in with a gun, points it at the guy, demands the cash, gets the cash, and as an afterthought, puts a bullet in the guy's head. Life has cheapened. It has cheapened. And, uh... And I'm not going to blame it on anything, but I'm going to tell you the one thing that uh, that I see. In 20 years on the police department, from 75 to 95, I think that I could safely say to date I saw the biggest change in law enforcement, mm-hmm. at least in the city of Los Angeles. And uh, a lot of things contributed to that, and I think one is the media. You know, the movie The Wild Bunch. I think that came out in about 75, 76, 77. Right. was considered a very violent movie when it came out. In fact, there, in many theaters, the complete movie was not shown. There was a, an edited or a cut version. And just recently, in the last few years, do you get to see that in video. Um, that's That movie could almost be shown on regular TV nowadays. It's true. And uh, I think uh, special effects, they're not special effects anymore. It's even better than a real murder. Um, you mean from a, from a dramatic uh, from a dramatic point of view? From a dramatic point of view, you, you look at these, you know, I've seen a lot of people die, and I've seen a lot of people shot, and I'm going to tell you right now that it's uh, more dramatic, more exciting, more visual on a good movie uh, even on a good TV series than it really is in real life. And then they somewhat romanticize it in either one or two ways, uh, either through the perspective uh, of the, the suspect or the emotional side uh, of law enforcement or the family. So you have a, a numbness that is put out into this country where we are used to murder. Yeah, I think you're right. And, I, and then the other side of the coin is uh, you have people watching this that really can't grasp the message. All they see is the violence. When you came out of the academy, most cops, when they come out of the academy, they're ready to save the world. They figure they can make a really serious difference. And I think the, uh, the crisis point comes for them when they realize that they can't change the whole world. And... They're doing a job day to day to day, and that's when a lot of them decide, that's it, I'm out of here. Uh, how do you get through that, that point? Or did you originally come in assuming you couldn't save the world? 
Well, you know, I think I think I came in with uh, the thoughts I wanted to be a really good street policeman, but I didn't I didn't have the idea about saving the world. I'm not sure that that the whole world deserved that. Uh, <laughs> I think looking at it, uh, I, I really took every thing I did uh, one by one. Of course, when you work gangs, you know you're assigned certain groups of gangs. Of course, then it's more of a total thing. But just working the street every day, you come to work. It's a new day. I took everything on an individual basis, and if I left that night uh, having, you know helped a victim, caught a suspect, or taken a guy off the street that would victimize somebody the next day. I had a very good feeling uh, inside that I did a good good day's work. I did good police work. It was above and beyond. And, uh, you know, I went away thinking, well, tomorrow's another day. Let's try to duplicate that. I think the tough part comes when you realize that uh, the guys working the street – uh, trying to catch bad guys. The real catch-22 is when you realize that the number one thought on most police departments is uh, the way they appear, the administration, the politics, mm-hmm. silly programs, uh, squeaky wheels. Uh, it's not catching the bad guys. It's uh, how do we look. And that's, that's a very um, demeaning and disheartening feeling to know that... Uh, Sometimes your captains and commanders are more uh, political than they're yeah. yeah. They're more in, in, in tune to uh, chamber of commerce luncheons than they are, you know. Uh, you know, my guys really catching the, the guys out in the street they should be. Here's a problem I had when I was dispatching. Uh, we were in a 911 system, you know, and I had a whole bank of phone lines, and I had X number of patrol cars that I was keeping track of and fire as well. And we had a great deal of responsibility in Monterey. There was a supervisor, but pretty much you took a call, you followed it through, you decided the response, you dispatched the response, and you carried it through to the end. Now, I, there were a lot of life and death kind of things that happened when I was there, and what I found was when it didn't work out right, I whipped myself. I, I would take it home with me I, every single night. And some nights more than others, I take it home with me, and I couldn't put it to rest when I got home. How'd you do that? Well, you know, it's, it, the first few years I, I worked in 77th Division, my first couple of years, which is in Dead Center in Watts, and the the caliber of policemen there were the best in the city. They had the most crime. They also had the most crime reduction. Um, so I learned from those policeman how to be a good policeman and they had probably the best sense of humor that i have seen on the department since that date and i don't mean making fun of people i mean within us they were they were a fun-loving group of guys they they were friends they spent time off duty together they they went camping their families and the guys went i mean it was it was a very cohesive productive division in a time uh, it's it's hard to say that you don't take it home, but I think I was so darn busy the first three or four or five years that I think it stayed inside of me, and I wasn't trying to get rid of it, but it was there. You just don't realize. It. I think that's the the um, the real problem 
is you don't recognize there's a problem because you're too busy. And a lot of people go, too busy doing what? You only work eight, ten hours. Well, you always work overtime. And then if you work nights and you make a lot of arrests, that means every weekday you're in court. Mm-hmm. And your first three or four years in the job, you don't have weekends off. You're working weekends. That means you have maybe a Monday and Tuesday off or a Tuesday and Wednesday off. Uh, you're in court, and then you go home at night, but you're working uh, the next night. So you, you in essence, never have a day off. So th- that builds up, but you're young. So you feel you can handle it. You blow it off. The macho, uh, you know, I can do anything. I'll get through it. I'm indestructible. And it does catch up. And I think most cops, I had it, a lot of cops have it. About seven, eight years, you just, uh, the batteries start are running down. down. Yeah. And, uh, and that's also about the time when you're age, you know, you're not a kid anymore. And you start realizing things about, um, your, uh, your chances of not only getting hurt, but being killed. Just exactly what is going on around you. Uh, you're part of it, but you don't seem to be able to fill the ocean with sand, no matter how much you shovel in there. So, you, you know, I think all those things combine to, to make a feeling where maybe you should have vented, maybe you should have taken it home and realized it right from the beginning and, and uh, got rid of it little by little instead of just waiting till it kind of piles up. All right, so one of the following happens usually at that point. Either you quit, you have a heart attack and die, you get divorced, or you commit suicide. See, I got divorced twice. I almost left, left the job. But, you know, I hung in there. I worked out my personal life. I realized a lot of things about myself. And the one thing that I realized about myself was is I was a good cop. And that's what I know. That's what I enjoy. So I worked everything else around it. And uh, you, you try to... Uh, you just try to do what you can, and yeah, some guys do leave, and I know quite a few of them that do. And uh, I still have been in touch with a few that have, and they all regretted it. Uh, so, I, and I hung in there, and I had some of the greatest years of my life. You mentioned sense of humor, and you're right. Cops really have a good sense of humor, albeit very perverted, but good. Uh, inside, I remember... <laughs> I I worked uh, the same shift I'm on right now, uh, graveyards. And on graveyards, you're stuck a lot of times, a lot of time, and maybe not on some nights a whole lot going on. I mean, it's either very quiet or you're pumping a lot of adrenaline more than you want to, one or the other. But when you've got a lot of time in your hands, uh, a lot of strange things happen. I, I uh, I remember one cop stuffing some fireworks up into the back of the tailpipe of another taping them on there, they get hot enough, they start going off, and, uh... No, they don't do that. No, they don't do that. <laughs> yeah. um, I remember uh, Mace on the inside of motorcycle helmets. Oh, yeah. Visors. That's <laughs> a good one. <laughs> All that kind of stuff, on and on and on and on. Uh, did you see a lot of that in 20 years? Oh, yeah. I mean, a, a lot of fun. Uh, there's never a dull moment. Uh, you know, I'll give you a couple couple examples, uh... When I was working gangs, we had uh, we had three gang members that were down. They were shot and killed. They were shot in the back, right by a road. Of course, we got there, and I was in a suit, and I walked up the scene. Of course, the media, of course, they are, they run up and 
they throw a mini cam in my face. And of course. What happened here? Worst case of suicide I ever saw. You know, that's that's the kind of sense of humor that you got to have. Um, it's it, protective, huh? Oh yeah, it's. You know, another one. Was, I, I saw a friend of mine, a motor officer, that was he was running radar on this this road by the beach, and uh, I passed him, and he didn't see. I had my girlfriend's car, mm-hmm. and I saw him, so I said, "No, nah, I'm going to be late for work. No, nah, I can't help it." <laughs> so I turn around and I go about 80 miles an hour down the road, and I see him jump on the bike, and God, he's, he's just he's scrambling around throwing his radar guns, and I just pull over. He comes up, and he looks at me, and he goes, oh, damn, why'd you do this to me? <laughs> you know, I mean, this is, just, this is what cops do to each other. Uh, so, and it, it, it's the same thing in the fire department. It's the same thing in bartenders. It's the same thing in insurance salesmen. They all have their way, their little sense of humor that only they know. Yeah, um, and a lot of people criticize that, but it does go on. I, again, I've got one for you. Um, as a dispatcher, I, I used to drive back uh, to Castroville every night from uh, Monterey, and I'm pretty heavy. I'm pretty he- heavy-footed myself. Uh, anyway, I got stopped, and uh, I was being a nice guy. I just went through the routine. He wrote up the ticket, and I showed him my license, and all of a sudden he recognized my name and started all sorts of invective against me, and he said, are you out of your mind letting me write this ticket? Why did you do that? I'm not doing that. Do you realize your boss determines my workload? Get out of here and don't ever do it again. <laughs> yep. yep. Been there. Yeah. Um, you're, uh, you're such a good career to end in such a, a difficult way for you. We'll, we'll get to that, but before we do, I want to ask you about... Um, the New York thing, uh, the plunger business, the Haitian. Johnny Cochran, you know, has taken this one up. $53 million, I think, maybe involved or more. I don't know. Johnny who? Uh, <laughs> uh, jumped right on that one, I think. Uh, anyway, big deal in New York. Uh, how do you react to that? Well, first I'll say, of course Johnny Cochran did it. Uh, he knows that uh, Johnny Cochran will make this only a racial issue. He'll make it uh, such a racial issue that they'll never want to go to trial. Uh, he throws his hat in the ring, throws a couple of press conferences, and makes himself a cool five to ten million dollars because they're going to settle out of court. They'd never want this to go to trial. I wouldn't think so. So I mean, I think that's that's uh, well well placed theatrics on Johnny's part. And uh, as far as the incident, I don't know collectively enough. Uh, about it to really make a, a real intelligent judgment. Uh, I, from what I know, it is one of the most unbelievable things I've ever heard. Not unbelievable it didn't happen, just I'm almost in shock at the allegations. So, yeah, without information, more information, it's hard to comment. But if it did happen as described, can you imagine that? Uh, how does that happen? I mean, it, it, that's a, a depravity with an individual. This doesn't have to do with being a policeman. This, somebody, if this happened the way it was supposedly described and all of those things are in place, I feel very bad that it did and somebody was a policeman that did it, but he was not a policeman when he did it, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. This was something that was a deep-seated 
um, a deep-seated uh, rage or something. I, I don't even know. I, I wish I could uh, say something that would sound very intelligent and, and explain how somebody could go from uh, an arrest to uh, basically raping somebody with a plunger. I, I don't know. I can't imagine it, I guess, and I, I would hope it would not be, but I, it appears by all, all, all evidence that I've heard that it did. So, Thin, thin Blue Line was a really... Uh, good title. It is a really thin line, and there really are bad cops, and there really is a thing among cops that, to a pretty good degree, they'll protect each other. There's no absolutely no question about it. I mean, they'll cover for each other. In code of silence. Yeah, absolutely. It's real. Well, it, you know what's funny about it is? There is no such thing, and I'll tell you why. Because if there's a code of silence on the police department, then Every mother that goes to court and testifies and gives her son an alibi, that's a code of silence. The neighbor that looks out the window and won't talk to the police, that's a code of silence, even though their relatives are the victims of those very suspects. That's true. You have a code of silence in corporations. They look at sexual harassment, right. embezzlement. They watch employees stealing out of the till. Is this not the code of silence? It is. We're talking about a human emotion that they don't want to get involved and drag themselves into somebody else's mud. That's what people call a code of silence. I think these cops, I think at the 70th precinct in the, in, uh, in the Bronx, isn't it? Right. You know, a lot of these guys are going, no matter what they know about this, they go, I don't want anything to do with this. I'm yeah. not going to comment one way or another. Oh yeah, this, they're, they, they're going to say one thing. I didn't arrest this guy. I didn't see anything. I didn't participate. I don't want anything to do with it. That's not the code of silence. It's everybody going, I don't want the heartache. I hear you. All right, hold on. We're at the top of the hour. Rest, grab a cup of coffee, do whatever you want to do, and we'll be back. Mark Furman, uh, retired detective Mark Furman, is my guest. Not so retired, pretty active, actually. And we're talking about being a cop, and yes, we'll talk about, of course, the, uh, the Simpson trial, his book, Murder in Brentwood, and he's got another one coming. We'll have to find out about that. I'm Art Bell, and this is Coast to Coast AM. Taking calls on the wild card line at 702-727-1295. That's 702-727-1295. First-time callers can reach Art Bell at 702-727-1222. 702-727-1222. Now, here again, Art Bell. Good morning. My guest is Mark Furman. Retired Detective Mark Furman. This should be very interesting. Let me talk to you for a second about talk shows, because that's what you're listening to right now. If you're tired of missing talk shows, there is a way that you don't have to anymore. doesn't matter whether it's mine or Rush or Laura during the day, or whatever it is you like listening to. I mean, things happen. 
late at night, the eyelids begin to get heavy, and you fall asleep, and you kind of curse yourself in the morning because you miss something you wanted to hear. It doesn't have to be that way. There is extended re uh, record time, real talk. Now, what is that? It uh, stands tall. It's solid black in color. It's all digital. It is an AM-FM radio, and a very good one at that. Uh, but most importantly, it has built into it a quarter-speed tape deck. Now, that's the important part. That means you can take the tape they supply with it, which is a very high-quality 110-minute tape, which would normally get what? Do the math. 55 minutes on each side. But because this recorder runs at quarter speed, instead it gets four hours on one side, just about four hours. Now, it's got all kinds of features you're going to want. Timed recordings, kind of like a VCR, you can set it. Um, it has ten memory presets each for AM and FM, built-in microphone, headphone jack, all of that. Operates on batteries or on 110, which means that you can plug it into the wall, record your favorite talk show, then unplug it and take it to work or into your car or truck, and it operates on batteries. So, if you're into talk radio, you've got to have one of these. 149.95. I use mine every single day. So will you. The number is one, a uh, sea crane company, of course, sells it. 1-800-522-8863, beginning at 7.30 in the morning. 1-800-522-8863. If you missed one of the great investment opportunities of this century, the cell phone industry, listen to me. Due to the new computer technology, now there's a prepaid cellular telephone. It's your second chance to invest in this great market. Think of how many people will rush to get a cell phone they can use at their convenience with a prepaid number of minutes on them. No more credit hassles for these people. Just easy, renewable use on demand. How's that for a hot investment opportunity? Now, now you can own a piece of the cellular system that taps into this giant new market. Of course, this is an important investment opportunity for you, involving some pre-qualifying and requiring a minimum participation of $8,400. But you can evaluate the risk and the rewards for yourself by getting their free investment kit and video cassette outlining this explosive opportunity that could potentially earn thousands of dollars plus yearly income for the rest of your life. Call for the free material at 1-800-444-1050. That's 1-800-444-1050. Find out how it can be part of your IRA or retirement account. The folks at Wireless Communications have already completed two cities. Don't miss the next one. 1-800-444-1050. All right, back now to my guest, retired Detective Mark Furman, uh, who's now in Idaho. Uh, Mark, back on the air again. I guess what, tell me, if you would, about your first book, uh, Murder in Brentwood, an obvious book, uh, one of many, 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 many written about the subject. What made you decide to write it and... Tell me about it. Well, you know, when I retired, um, I knew quite a bit of, of what uh, happened and didn't happen in this case. Mm. And I kept it uh, very close to the vest. I kept it to myself. Uh, even my good friends, uh, when this book finally came out, go, how did you not tell us? Mm. You know, my response was, "Is you didn't need to know. 
but when the the political climate, I can take so much heat, uh, and I did, and I went to Idaho, and I and I'm working, and I'm retired, and I'm leaving everybody alone. I'm not saying a thing. Is everybody leaving you alone? Yes, they are. And even even then, I think um, you know. Of course, you had you had reporters, and you had people that that came to town. They wanted things, but I wasn't saying anything to anybody. But when they indicted me for something that wasn't even a crime, that to me was the last straw. Uh, I did my part. I went away. I was out of sight. I was out of mind. I was not going on TV. I was not going on radio. I was doing nothing. And I had so many things, and some things I still haven't haven't told. But uh, when they did that, I said, that's it. You know, they, what, what did they indict you for? Perjury. Perjury. Uh, that's right. And now there was a, there was not long ago some sort of, I remember the press on it, some sort of pushing incident where you allegedly shoved some kind of reporter or something. Oh, in Spokane, that was in January Spokane. of 1995 when I came to Sandpoint to, uh, to buy a house. Right. What happened? You know, uh, a reporter came up to me and I was sitting in, in the airport, uh, and he asked, he identified himself and he said, you know, I've, I'm a reporter from the Spokesman Review, and I'd like to ask you a few questions. And and I was nice to him, and I said, well, you know, it's, I'd rather not. And, you know, my wife's with me, and, and my wife is trying to signal me. He's got a tape recorder underneath his notepad. Uh -huh. And uh, I couldn't really, I think she whispered to me, but I can't hear very well in my right ear, so I don't know if she was saying it or just motioning. But, you know, there was nothing said that uh, that bothered me. I was trying to be nice. I gave him somewhat of an interview, basically saying, you know, uh, what news is it me buying a house in Sandpoint? I mean, this is really silly. And uh, he said, well, would you mind if we took a picture? And I said, yes, I would. Well, you know the old saying, if you don't want an answer, don't ask. Right. And if you're not going to uh, respect the answer, why did you ask? So this photographer, uh, lo and behold, we went up to the waiting area for a plane, and the photographer was on the ramp standing in front of us taking pictures. And I was very, very protective over my family. Uh, I'm in the public eye, not by choice, but just of the very nature of what happened. Sure. And, uh, you know, she, I told her to leave, and he just kept clicking photos, and I walked by and said, okay, you got your photos. Goodbye. Well, he proceeded. He continually did this. Every place I stepped, he was there. The, the long and the short of it, I said, you know, we just get out of my way. And uh, I went to, to move him out of my way. That's all I did is to put my arm on his shoulder and move him to the side, and he collapsed. I mean, he just went down like he was shot. Uh -huh. It was an obvious setup. Uh, my wife saw saw another camera off to the side. Uh, somebody else uh, photoing. I mean, it, it was obvious. There's an old uh, expression, I think, whiplash equals quick cash. And there you go. But, you know, you know, no matter what it was, I, I, th I think it shows the pathetic nature sometimes of the media to get an unstory. Uh, and if they have an unstory, they're going to get a story regardless. They're not going to waste their time. I found the same thing, exactly the same thing. Um when there was a suicide at Rancho Santa Fe, uh, the media blamed me, and uh, it was it was hell on wheels for a long time around here. Uh, and it's because they didn't have a story with the suicide. 
Well, yeah, they, they wanted to com- connect me to it. And um, once they found out, for a long time it was, we're going to tell our story this way. This is the way we've decided to tell it. And no matter how many facts I would give them otherwise, they wouldn't print the facts. They would print what was cool. You know, here, was, uh, here were 39 people who probably committed suicide because Art Bell had a show about some companion object uh, way back uh, when in November about uh, with regard to Comet Hill Bob. And so I had the press everywhere. I mean, they were just relentless. And now, of course, we've got this Princess Di thing. Now I guess you can relate a little bit to being chased by the press. It's pretty awful, isn't it? That was the least intrusive incident of three years, if you can believe that. Oh, I can believe it. Uh, you know, it's funny is, is uh, as soon as I, I wrote the book, and getting back to that just for a second, and I'll, sure. I'll be able to tell you a little bit. As soon as I went on Diane Sawyer, October, let's see, October third, we taped the first, the first prime time, and it aired, I believe, the seventh. After I did the prime time, the whole media's attitude changed because I had broken my silence. Mm. And now the exclusive was out the window. Diane Sawyer owned it. Right. So now we're all playing catch-up. Now we have to show Mark some respect, or he won't say anything to us, because now we know he will speak. So it's kind of odd, and I don't know if I'm putting the thought process in their head, but the interesting part is there is a complete evolution from that point until the next prime time, until people started reading the book, and then they realized that they were duped by a lot of people in this case. And, you know, you said there was a lot of books written, and I'll agree. And, unfortunately, I had to read all of them. (laughs) But I will tell you one thing about them. There's three kinds of authors. There's the authors that sat in the courtroom and really know nothing about the inner workings of the case or listened to only people's view of the case. You had the people that had to defend a man that was clearly guilty of a double homicide that had to make up any fantasy they could, no matter what publishers wanted. They gave them a fantasy and a defense. They had to write those books. You had a few people in the prosecution that had to cover some some bases. They had to cover some mistakes. They had to make some excuses, knowing full well my book was coming out. My book came out. I had no reason to change one thing that happened in this case, because I didn't do anything wrong in the investigation. Anything that I did wrong or people believed I did wrong or I felt bad for, I was very upfront. And that's a very disarming book for most of these people. When you can't beat me up anymore. On it. I understand. Uh, the very same thing happened with me. Finally, when the facts got out, um, it all began to change. There was a turning point, thankfully, uh, when the truth actually got out, and I'm sure that was true with you too. When 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 this whole thing started, the very first moment you uh, entered this case, did you know what you were into? Well, you know, I really didn't. Uh, you know, I, I've been around a lot of celebrities. I used to bodyguard celebrities I, for years. I mean, back to 1978. Uh, I've taught a lot of celebrities and, and famous people and rich people. You know how to shoot. That was one of the things I did. I used to be a on the pistol team in LAPD, and I was an instructor at the academy for a period when we were transitioning to 9mm. So I, I've had contact with celebrities, and not only on the department, but off. And when we went there, 
that wasn't a big shock for me and that wasn't a big hook for me and it really didn't make any difference to what I did or what I thought. Only after I was at the prelim and the city and the world started making a big deal about a professional testimony I gave, something I'd been doing for 20 years, no, or by that, then it was uh, 18 years, nobody seemed to give uh, any attention before that, and all of a sudden the same thing I'd been doing for 18 years was now something special. Hmm. But when I realized that I did well, I embarrassed Professor, Professor Ullman on his uh, motion to suppress evidence. Uh, I, in fact, focus, put a focus on myself. They realized who made decisions, who put things together, who found what, who interviewed who, and that was me. And I knew probably the day after, two days after that prelim, that um, I was done no matter what they had to do to me. I, they, they were going to start a scandal with me regardless. Uh, I had to go. That was the number one thing. I had to go. Did you know that there was, did you remember then that there was history that they could get you with? You mean the screenplay? Yeah, sure. I didn't even think about that. You know, a lot of people go, how could you not think about this? Well, you know, first thing is, is it was mischaracterized uh, in so much as the time frame. Almost the whole, the whole tape, all the tapes they were talking about were done in 85, 86. The only thing that was done after that point was luncheon meetings with people interested in the project, uh, a producer that works at a major studios, uh, interested parties, uh, those type of people. So you're talking about 85 and 86, and we're doing a fictional screenplay. Why should I be worried about this? It's not something I would hold guilt for. It's not like a true life experience or something that actually occurred. It's not like I'm trying to cover up or hide for. I was, I was very upfront when people said, you know, uh, what do you are you working on something or you know are you doing something? I said, yeah, well, we're trying to make a screenplay, you know, and it's, it's kind of fun. But uh, there was never anything that I held uh, a, a repressed guilt for. So I didn't even think about it. Usually at the beginning of something like this, uh, the prosecuting attorney will sit you down and say, look, is there anything? anything in your background uh they knew this case was going to go racial they had to know is there anything in your background that's going to come out that we need to know about there must have been a moment like that you know i never i i think you know no there was never a moment like that i think after you know i was attacked that question was asked uh you know is there anything else and i go i can't think of anything so you know but when the tapes came out Probably, maybe, you know, when I heard that they were looking for him and the tapes were for sale and all these things, was the first time I ever even gave him a thought. So I think that's something that, that people should really think about for a second. Uh, if you do something very innocent ten years prior that because of circumstance you could never even imagine and being edited and carefully played in the media and in the courtroom in a certain way, it can seem very damaging. Oh, yes. So, you know, I never thought about that. Um, if I would have, of course I would have told the, the prosecutors, but I never even gave it a thought. I mean, that never crossed my mind. Was that the uh, defense attorney's crowning moment? In other words, I guess I'm asking you in a way, 
what happened to you, is that what lost the case? Oh, absolutely not. That case was lost in the first 12 hours. I just didn't know it. You know, I go, in, I go into this whole thing from the beginning to the end in my book, and I don't lay out one thing in there I cannot absolutely 100% prove. Phil Van Adder routed that case from the first time that he stood in that street and took the case from uh, Ron Phillips, Brad Roberts, and myself, and we handed him my notes. That was the kiss of death right there. I mean, how much evidence did he leave? He didn't read my notes. He left a bloody fingerprint on the on the rear gate. He left an open and empty knife box in Simpson's bathroom. He left sweats in the wash machine. I mean, there was evidence he left everywhere. I remember the motion to suppress regarding the initial entry. Uh, was there really enough evidence uh, to go jumping over? Oh, absolutely. I'll, I'll give it to you the other way. Uh, we come from a double homicide scene. We have a female we think is Nicole Brown Simpson. I was the only one that wouldn't absolutely say it was because it's unimportant if it absolutely is. We have a double homicide. We cannot explain who this male is here either. So if you can't explain who he is, you really can't put much together with the crime scene. He could have been a suspect. We do not know. Sure. So uh, what we have is we have two dead people. We have a blood trail leading away from the bodies. We have a bloody fingerprint on the gate. It's not a dog that left it there. It's a human. We have blood drops that stop in the driveway, a logical place, or excuse me, the alleyway, a logical place for a vehicle. We go up to the Simpson mansion, I think quite improperly. Uh, I would not have done it. Uh, Lang and Van Adder were now in charge. They said, can you get us up there? I checked the address with a patrol officer. I said, yeah, I can get you up there. Why would you not have done it? Because it's unnecessary. I really don't care if an ex-husband ever gets notified. He may be a suspect, but as far as notifying him and breaking up my crime scene investigation at that early stage, I don't care. Especially a celebrity. Where's he going to go? Well, I guess I remember the question was asked, was he at that moment? A suspect. Well, not in my mind. In Van Adder's? You know, I don't. He didn't relay it to me. Um, of course, we don't know if, if they wanted to go up there just to say that they're the ones that notified him that his ex-wife was dead. I, I found it very odd that the Brown family learns that that uh, Nicole's dead on the phone, yet O.J. Simpson, an ex-husband, uh, is going to be notified in person. This was clearly because he was a celebrity and he was wealthy. And that's what I don't agree with. Nonetheless, I was asked to take him up there. I did. I make observations on a public street of what I believe is blood on, on the Bronco. Uh, I make observations that this is, in fact, O.J. Simpson's Bronco. Mm -hmm. I see other things in the back, a shovel, a piece of plastic. Now, you connect these few things here. They have a double homicide with blood drops leading away. Obviously, somebody left. They got into a vehicle. Here we have a vehicle that is parked somewhat askew. It has a drop of blood on the driver's side by the door handle where a person with a left hand would open the door. The print on the knob was on the left side of the gate, most probably a left-handed left operation. You have the drop stopping. That means they got into a car. Mm -hmm. You combine that with connecting that car to O.J. Simpson. Nobody answers the door. Lights are on upstairs. Lights are on downstairs. Nobody answers the door.
Now, at this time, you don't have to be a suspect to make an entry. I mean, you don't have to suspect that there's a suspect there. You have an obligation for public safety to make sure nothing's wrong with someone inside. Do we have a situation where O.J. Simpson was actually fending off a suspect and sure. killed the male and sure. he got away and went home to call 911 and never made it that far? Now, how bad do you think we would have been scrutinized once we saw this evidence? We saw this connection to two crime scenes. In other words, well, what became another crime scene, but connection between two residences. And he is related to the possible victim, even by ex-marriage. Can you see what would have happened if he would have been dead in there or any person would have been injured or dead in there and we were standing right there and we walked away? So it would have been derelict not to go in. I'm going to tell you there would have been no attorney in the world. I mean, the city of Los Angeles would have settled for $50 million because there is ample probable cause. In fact, it's overwhelming that you have to do something. You do have to make contact and establish there's nothing wrong, and that's exactly why we entered, and that's exactly what we attempted to do. All right. Hold it right there. We're at the bottom of the hour. Relax, grab some more coffee, and we'll be right back. My guest is retired Detective Mark Furman. I'm Art Bell, and this is Coast to Coast AM. West of the Rockies at 1-800-618-8255. 1-800-618-8255. East of the Rockies at 1-800-825-5033. 1-800-825-5033. This is the CBC Radio Network. We are the ones. Top of the morning, everybody, wherever you are. We will begin taking calls here in a moment. So if you have a question for retired Detective Mark Furman... Now would be a good time. Do you ripple a bit while you walk? <laughs> Too many Americans do. There's a lot of excess weight out there because there's a lot of excess food, and it's consumed on a regular basis by Americans. And so we're constantly on diets. There is a revolu re revolutionary... Why do I have a hard time with that word? A brand new... Uh, I don't know if you want to call it a diet. It's a fiber. It's called chitosan, and it comes from shellfish, so it's absolutely natural. And this fiber absorbs ten times more fat than any other fiber, hence a, a quite a remarkable guarantee for the product that has chitosan called Slim. Here's a guarantee. Eat as you normally do. Don't take this as a cue to go pig out suddenly. Just eat as you normally do, not less. You're not going to be starving yourself. Take this product, and you either lose 8 to 10 pounds in the next month, or you get every penny of your money back. Moreover, when you order a 90-day supply of Kaido Slim, you get an antioxidant moisturizing cream. comes along 
free of charge with your order, use it. Use good and use the uh, cream. Because if you don't lose that meat in the first month, you get your money back and keep the cream. The number to call is 1-800-557-4627. That's 1-800-557-4627. When you think about the future, do you see the economy getting better or worse? With a small investment of your time, you can create security for yourself by learning to trade in the commodities markets. Some financial pundits have just about made commodities a dirty word. But if you know the ins and outs of how to do it, how to approach it with the right attitude, commodities can pay off big time. Look at coffee. Have you seen the recent huge rise in coffee prices? Investors in this market are making huge profits, and you can too. For over 15 years, the Ken Roberts Company has taught people to learn and understand the principle of making money through clear, decisive decisions in the commodities markets. This is not a get-rich-quick scheme. It's a step-by-step process. First, you learn how to invest with a no-risk approach by trading paper. Then, when you're ready, you begin using real money. Call now, 888-GOLD-KRC, to receive absolutely free, with no obligation, a complete report and audio tape that explains everything. No more guesswork. Call now, 888-GOLD-KRC. That's 888-G-O-L-D-K-R-C. All right, back now to Detective Mark Furman uh, in Idaho. Detective, welcome back. Thank you. Uh, you know, I'd kind of like to let uh, everybody begin to ask questions of you. Um, I'm sure you've done this a lot of times before, have you not? Oh, yeah. Just two things, TV coverage in courtrooms. Good idea, bad idea? Bad idea. Bad idea. Well, it seems like a lot of judges have taken that cue since that trial because there hasn't been a lot of TV coverage of big, uh, high-profile trials. You know, you know what bothers me is, is the judges are, are taking the same profile here as, as we are about uh, the tragedy that happened to, to Princess Diana and the paparazzis. Uh, it caused some. Uh, we had to have somebody's death to make somebody realized that they were a nuisance and not a nuisance uh, by and large every photographer but the people that actually make themselves uh, obtrusive and aggressive and almost uh, almost causing assaults with their camera basically the judges are they trying to say that that they saw something good out of letting somebody play to a camera let defense attorneys give speeches let people in the courtroom uh, basically uh, become famous it's exactly what they wanted mm-hmm. uh, and if you know if people say well we have a right to know what goes on in our courtrooms then go to your respective county city uh, or state uh, courtroom and walk in they're open for you go in and see it it was a particularly hard public lesson too um, and it, it, it dilapidated a lot of uh, faith in the justice system to watch all that unfold. What about the judge, Judge Ito? Uh, even though the cameras were there, he allowed a lot of that speech uh, speech fine to go on. He didn't have control of that courtroom from the, from the first day. Uh, you know, it, I've been in a lot of courtrooms, and I'm not a judge and I'm not an attorney, but I'll tell you one thing. I've never seen two things. I've never seen attorneys held in contempt of court, especially prosecutors. It was a badge of honor in this case. 
And I've never seen a judge let everybody in the courtroom rule his court except for him. I think the clerk had a better grasp on what was going on in that room than the judge did. What about the prosecution? Did they make any fatal mistakes, in your opinion? Well, you know, I think they did, but, you know, we're talking in hindsight. I'd say, you know, if I'm taken back there, uh, I think uh, realizing that the judge was making some horrendous uh, errors in his motions and in what he allowed in the courtroom, I think there should should have been. And I conveyed this then, so I, I, will, I won't say this is hindsight. I actually said it then. The motion to ask me racial uh, questions mm -hmm. in this case was totally, totally irrelevant. And once the judge allowed that questioning, he overruled himself, by the way. On a Friday, he told the defense that if they cannot show that there was any evidence tampering or planning of evidence by Monday, they aren't going to be able to question. Then he overruled himself by Monday. So it, it's interesting that I went to Marsha Clark once the ruling was in that they could, and I said, appeal it. You remember we were talking earlier about uh, code of silence? Yes. If you had a partner, and uh, I'm, I think I'm pulling this out of an old... Uh, you're he'll, giving he'll, a no-winner here, I can tell. Well, no, uh, <laughs> out of an old Hill Street Blues okay. piece. Uh, if you had a partner, and uh, your partner ran down a kind of a dark alley, uh, after a suspect, suspect turned around, your partner thought he had a gun, uh, thought he saw a gun, pulled and fired and killed the uh, suspect, mm -hmm. and upon close examination, found out, uh-oh, no gun. Mm -hmm. So he throws one down. Now, would your inclination at that point be to, uh, to cover for him or to go to uh, internal affairs? Well, I, I think... Uh, it's a hard uh, question, I know. Yeah, not, neither one. Uh, first thing is, is uh, that type of shooting occurs in America quite often. Yes. And it, it doesn't happen because somebody's out there trying to kill people. It happens because you have two people that are very scared. You have two people that are in a life-and-death situation. You bet. And everything's made at, at hundredths of a second, yep. the decision. Yep. Now, I think in that situation, I'd probably say... Pick that up. That, that is the stupidest thing in the world. Uh, you know, put it away. Yeah, I think I probably have to tell somebody what happened, but I think I'd probably be telling to my partner. I go, hey, look, you did nothing wrong. You went on instinct. This is what you felt. Tell the shooting team what you felt, what was going on in your mind. You don't need to play these stupid games. And uh, you know, I've never seen anybody with a throwdown gun. Uh, if I did. No, I'm not going along with that. That's Then I just become uh, part and parcel of a homicide because the only logical explanation why somebody would do that is is they had the, the preconceived or the predetermined uh, attitude that they were going to shoot. Well, the reason I asked that is because if you knew that there had been a horrible double murder committed, uh, but there probably wasn't going to be, you know, you can see as a case develops uh, investigating that there probably wasn't going to be enough absolute direct evidence to convict. Uh, you wouldn't throw down a glove. Oh, I mean, that, that is so silly, and I'll tell you why everybody that knows me knows how silly that is. 
when I do a case, I do 110%. I do everything I can. I do all, all the cross all the T's, dot all the I's. I do all the good police work. I'm imaginative. You know, I figure out different ways to 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 get evidence to whatever. But once I do all that, and you you have all this evidence and you write it down, it goes to the prosecutor. And I don't feel any responsibility if the prosecution or a jury can't convict because I did my job. Now, if I didn't do my job, then I would feel some responsibility. But you, you can't produce evidence. And I'll tell you a reason why. Because there's always a way that something doesn't fit if it didn't get there in a natural progression of somebody's actions. Mm-hmm. You, know, you know, everybody goes, oh, you could have planted the glove. Anybody that says I could plant the plant the glove or would plant the glove or any any way or any framework at that time that I could is nothing more than ignorant beyond belief. All right. Um, let's uh, let's try a few phone calls and see what we get here. Uh, first time caller line. Good morning. You're on the air with Mark Furman. Hello, Art. Hi. Where are I'm, you? I'm in Dallas, Texas. All right. I've got two quick questions. One for you, Art. I've been listening to you for over six months now and I've never heard you comment either way on this case and my comment and my question for you Mark is I do believe that there was a uh, bloody fingerprint but if you and your partner were the only one to have spotted it why didn't one of you hang around and make sure that a sample was taken or a photograph was taken of this fingerprint if that is if having a fingerprint is just like signing his signature to the crime well, the first thing is, is uh, if Brad Roberts and I, he was my partner, if we would have kept the case, we would have done exactly that. But the case was no longer ours, and we were we were sent different places. Brad was sent to the to the police station initially to interview the people that had found the Akita dog, Nicole's dog. So he was away from the scene, and I was instructed to take Lang and Van Adder up to the Rockingham estate. Once I was up there, I was instructed to go back down at about seven fifteen, seven o'clock, something like that to see if the glove at Bundy was similar to the glove at Rockingham. I did that, and I returned to Rockingham, and I never returned to Bundy that day. So it, I understand your question, but I wrote it down in very clear block printing, very legibly on notes that I saw being handed to Phil Van Adder. There was no reason, absolutely none, that, that there was uh, any possibility that would not be collected or, or observed. I've seen them on uh, different shows, and they've just dismissed that fingerprint as a pile of bunk. Well, that's I, mean, I, be- I believe you. I don't believe you did anything wrong, but they are just blaming everything on you. Well, you know, Phil Van Etter and uh, Tom Lang, uh, I read their book. Their, uh, their book is basically covering up every mistake they made. Tom Lang wasn't at Rockingham, uh, but he he handled the Bundy scene. He should at least inspect the path of the suspect and inspect that gate. Uh, you know, we know that he basically told the criminalist to go back there and, and collect it. He didn't observe it. You should observe it. You should direct every photograph and, and direct every collection of every piece of evidence so you can testify to it and you make sure it's done properly. Tom Lang and Phil Van Adder are in damage control. I took a polygraph. 
at the end of my media tour on March 17th of this year. I answered every question and then some on anything, any possible way, any possible anything, planning the globe, fingerprint, uh, Ito's wife, everything. I was truthful in all of it. Now, there's even one better. Larry Schiller, who wrote American Tragedy, is doing a paperback version. He asked me for some comments about the civil trial. We talked. We had a, a nice conversation several times. And just of recent date, uh, Larry Schiller in his paperback has revealed that during the civil trial, he got a hold of the Browns attorney, Mr. Kelly, and he interviewed him about the rear gate. Mr. Kelly said, well, we heard, you know, Mr. Furman say these things about the locksmith changed the lock the next day, which he did. The Brown family wanted those locks changed. So on June 14th, those locks were changed, and they interviewed the locksmith. The locksmith said, yeah, there was a bloody fingerprint on there, but I thought the police already analyzed it in photographs, so I just threw it away. He couldn't introduce that into the civil trial because it would have routed Lang and Van Adder completely. They didn't do it, and they went with what they had. Why did this case get taken away from you, and what did you feel when it did? Uh, I mean, you were there. You were developing the case in the beginning, and then get snapped away. Why? Why? Well, you know, this case, uh, logistically, this didn't have anything to do with ability. Uh, Lang and Van Adder were simply on call in a rotation-type basis. They were not handpicked by robbery homicide. But robbery homicide doesn't handle cases on a um, geographic type of assignment. In other words, in West L.A., if there's any murder, we handle it. No matter how many there are, we have to handle it. Mm -hmm. Robbery hom homicide can pick and choose. Not only that, they have about 25 homicide detectives that can work one case if need be. The logistics of this case, just on the onset, if this was Nicole Brown Simpson, even before O.J. Simpson was a suspect, would be astronomical media-wise. Just for that fact alone, robbery homicide took the case on the recommendation of the West Bureau Chief, Chief Frankel had nothing to do with ability. As soon as, as far as feelings that I had, uh, of course I wanted to, to keep the case. You know, it would have been a very interesting case. Sure. But uh, once I realized that this is probably Nicole Brown Simpson, I knew it, this is going to be taken away. It's just a matter of when. So you do your job well up to a point. Ron Phillips, my supervisor, offered robbery homicide our services until they had all their detectives in place. And Brad Roberts and I, made uh, observations and found evidence up until, uh, you know, late that day. Uh, I think it's unusual that uh, that uh, Roberts, Detective Roberts and myself, found all the evidence. Lang and Van Etter found none. Uh, did you have any particular emotions when you heard that uh, Van Etter and Lang were getting the case? In other words, did you have any, any knowledge about uh, Van Etter and Lang from all the previous years that worried you when you heard they got the, they were getting the case. No, I, I didn't. I didn't even know them, and I, you know, I, I think there's another little um, thing about not knowing a detective. They've been on that long, and they're working robbery homicide. I knew quite a few people at robbery homicide, but their name had never come up, and 
my name was well known down there. Uh, I had been on 2020, uh, I think almost two years before, uh, because I was one of the people that really uh, understood and, and uh, was very successful in investigating carjackings. Um, so my reputation, robbery homicide, was already well thought of, but their reputation didn't precede them, which in hindsight is kind of odd. This is totally off subject, but you said you used to train people uh, how to shoot, how to use a gun. Yes. Tactically, I presume. Well, you know, you, you start with the basics, and then you work up to what, what their function for wanting to learn is. What is your attitude about this sort of, this new thing, uh, I have it in my state, where you go take a course and you can carry a gun, carry permits for civilians. How do you feel about that? Well, you know, I'm not sure. I think that depends on, on the individual. Um, I think, you know, when I taught somebody how to shoot, uh, no matter how rich they are or how competent or, or how much experience they had uh, in life, I said, you have to understand one thing. If you pull this gun out, you better be ready to use it. That's the first thing. And the second thing is you better be ready to give up everything you own because quite probably you're going to be sued. Mm -hmm. And if you pull the trigger and you're wrong on who you shoot or that bullet goes through that person and hits an innocent bystander, you're not a law enforcement officer. Your intent can be transferred, and you're liable for every person and every injury you occur, and God help you if you shoot a juvenile. Is there really that much difference between a civilian carrying a gun, responsibility-wise, uh, and, and a cop who's carrying a gun? Is oh, there, absolutely. In, in what way? I, I was told by my instructor that there really wasn't a lot of difference. Um, is he a cop? I had been a cop. Uh, he, he why, said, why isn't he a cop now? What he, I don't know. Uh, what he said was that... Good question, though. It is, yeah, but the, the basic rules apply. Uh, it's a good shoot or it's a bad shoot, um, and the, the same rules apply. In, in what way do they not? Well, I'll give you a great example. Uh, a two-year policeman and an 18-year policeman. Who do you think has the most experience, can sense the most things, uh, has uh, the ability to see a situation deteriorating very fast. Of course. They or the other thing is, is who has the experience to know he must react now or he will be shot. And if this is a situation the civilians have absolutely no possibility of encountering unless they're a victim maybe one time, which is one of the precipitating reasons that people want to carry a gun. They've been victimized. That's right. Now, they don't get the training. I don't care how much training you get as a civilian. You're not going to get the training that a cop gets in one month working a car. Well, that's that's true, and uh, it's also not ongoing. In other words, you take the course, and you probably forget most of what you've learned in the first few months or year. You don't think like a cop. No, that's right. You don't walk into a liquor store off-duty and make sure you look in before you walk in the door. But, Just walk in the door. But if there is a shooting, pretty much the same rules apply, don't they? No. no? A policeman, if he goes into, if he sees on or off duty, if he sees a felony in progress and there's life, a life-threatening situation, and he shoots a suspect with a gun that's holding uh, a store owner at bay, okay, and that bullet goes through that suspect and three other civilians, 
his intent can't be transferred. In other words, he's not liable for those people because he, he acted in good faith in the scope of his duties because once he takes action, even off-duty, he becomes on duty. The, uh, the city would not be liable civilly? Oh, maybe civilly, but we're talking criminal. Criminally, all right. No criminal liability but then. The city will still protect the policeman. He will, if there's, of course, anybody can sue anybody, but the sure. city will take care. He'll provide an attorney for the officer to represent him in, in any action. He'll, they'll pay for everything. You know, it's not something he has to worry about. Now, take a civilian, same situation. You better hope that the guy you're shooting is a suspect. Mm -hmm. You know, when you go in and everybody's got civilian clothes on and somebody's got a gun, it isn't always as it seems. What if a policeman goes in there, store owner's being held at gunpoint, he, in turn, prones the suspect on the ground, and the only thing you see is, is a guy in plain clothes pointing a gun down at the floor. Well, the cop's got the suspect prone down at the floor, and you shoot the cop. Yeah, that's true. These right. are things that you just don't key on as a civilian because you're, you're encountering this maybe one time in your life. That's absolutely true. Mark, hold on. We're at the top of the hour. We'll be right back. Lots and lots of people want to talk to you from the high desert. This is Coast to Coast AM. Taking calls on the wild card line at 702-727-1295. That's 702-727-1295. First-time callers can reach our bell at 702-727-1222. 702-727-1222. Now, here again... Art Retired Detective Mark Furman is my guest, and we're going to try to concentrate more on the telephones. We've done two hours of very interesting talk radio. A lot of it about being a cop and not so much about the O.J. Simpson trial, but I suspect we're going to talk a lot about that and inquire about his next book and stuff. So all of that coming up. Listen, for those of you out there who have arthritis pain... There is help. The New York Times reported that glucosamine and chondroitin sulfate really can help. You see, arthritis is manifested when two bones rub against each other. It's really that simple. There's supposed to be something in the middle preventing that called uh, cartilage. Now, glucosamine, chondroitin sulfate, and gelatin will actually assist your body, they found, in regrowing cartilage. So it's, you know, the real long-term answer to arthritis. It is in a product called Arthritis Assist. When you order, now remember, this is a long-term solution, but a permanent one. They also send you, uh, because they know you're in pain now, a pain relief cream that gives immediate relief. Now, if all of this doesn't work for you, you get your money back. Good sponsors guarantee their products. All of your money back. Can't get it in stores, but you can get it by calling 1-800-232-5665. Five, six, six, five. 
That's 1-800-232-5665 now, North American Trading. They are selling <laughs> St. Gordon's Double Eagle Gold Coins. Gold is good. They contain about one ounce of pure gold, as a matter of fact, at their cost. Now, I know that seems insane. Companies go broke when they sell things at cost. These are graded MS-62 by PCGS, so you know what you're getting. And the deal is that they're not insane. <laughs> they're operating on the old one-potato-chip theory. Once you get one of these coins, you will understand the beauty and the worth of holding gold, and you will want more. That is the method to their apparent madness. The price is $445 each, one ounce of gold, plus $9 shipping, and it's one per family. You know, it's obviously a one potato chip deal, so it's one per family, and that's a very strict rule. The number to call is 1-800-359-4255. 1-800-359-4255. There is a new crop circle photograph on my website. You might want to take a look at that. It's very, very interesting. And, oh, don't forget... The Rogue Market, if you can get to my website by hook or crook, or trace of words perhaps, uh, borrow somebody's computer, how about that, and get to my website, go to the Rogue Market and buy some Art Bell stock. We're having more fun with that, more people are making money. And if you get in now, you're going to make a lot of money because over the next week it's going to go through the roof. Actually, it's in that process right now. So if you go to the Rogue Market, of course they're not real dollars, but when you make a lot of them, you get prizes like T-shirts, that kind of thing. So hop over to the Rogue Market and buy some Art Bell stock. Let's talk about the miracle of Web TV. You know, the brand-new easy way to access the Internet with just a TV and a telephone. It's all in a little black box with six email addresses, Pareto controls, awesome graphics, and the easy-to-use remote control or optional wireless keyboard. And now... When you sign up for Web TV service for just $19.95 a month, you get free upgrades. Matter of fact, the last eight weeks they've added 16 fantastic upgrades, and more are on the way. It just keeps getting better and better. Now available is the new Hewlett Packard color printer for Web TV. It's the fastest in its class. And now the Lewis brothers have the printer, cable, and adapter, all for just $289.99, way less than you'd pay in stores. Or Here's an even better deal. In fact, a monster deal. Get Web TV, the wireless keyboard, the whole printer setup I just described, almost a $700 value. Don't ask me how they do it, but the Lewis brothers have got the whole package. I said the whole package. For just $579.95. That's $579.95. Mention this price in stores, they'll laugh you right out the door. Call the Lewis brothers now at one 800 659 669. Tell them you want Web TV, the one Art Bell told you about. 1 800 659 2669. All right, back now to Mark Furman. Uh, Mark, I'm going to try to concentrate harder on the phones here, uh, but I do have a couple of questions. One comes from uh, by fax uh, in Houston, Texas. Charlie wants to know, and so do I actually, about what you think with regard to the whole Princess Di thing. In other words, here they've got a Mercedes, reportedly an armored car, going 120 miles an hour in a tunnel, trying, allegedly, to escape these paparazzi folk, 
And I haven't figured it out. Unless one of these guys on a motorcycle managed to get in front of this Mercedes and, you know, pop a flashbulb in the face, I assume the side windows are probably tinted. I can't imagine any other way that a motorcycle, first of all, it's hard to imagine it doing 120 miles an hour, or a whole pack of them doing 120 miles an hour. Secondly, it's hard to imagine them forcing a big old heavy Mercedes like that off the road, and they wanted to get your take on that. What do you think? Well, I think we've got a whole, there's a whole bunch of ingredients involved here. First, they, they make motorcycles that could do over 160, and they're they're a lot cheaper than going down and buying a five-year-old truck. Uh, so, and, and most, and there's a lot of European and Japanese motorcycles that do that. So that's that's not an issue. I don't think this is that they were afraid of being photographed. I think they wanted not, they did not want the photographers to follow them to their destination. I think that's the problem. Right. Um, I don't think that they felt that they were going to be photographed in the car. Uh, and then we, you know, if what is true, from what I hear on the news, we had a uh, driver that did not think he was going to be working any farther, that uh, he was under the influence of alcohol yep. quite significantly, which uh, driving and, and judgment go out the window. And, you know, the funny thing is, is, you know, the old thing is somebody starts running, so somebody starts chasing them, or, you know, it, it's kind of silly, but if they're chasing you, the first impulses to run away sure not stop so i think there's a whole combination of things that kind of went into a, a, a international tragedy um i think we can say that you know i've heard all these arguments about you know celebrities want this and you know their whole bread and butter is, is creating this this frenzy about them to get them in the media and keep them in the media. Yep. I would say that's true. But I think there's uh, just a little bit of respect for privacy. It's one thing if they're going out and announcing, we are going to be here, uh, I'll make a press conference, I'll be available for questions. There's a big difference between that and a private romantic dinner with somebody that you're, you're dating. I think the same thing is, is, you know, over the years we've seen a Princess Di's photograph on vacation with her children, very fuzzy photographs taken with hundreds of millimeter lenses. Sure. They're hiding in the bushes in the middle of the Bahamas or in Monte Carlo. Aren't we going just a little bit too far there? Are we creating a paranoia about private moments? And when you really want to make them private, you have to go to the extremes of trying to have a completely armored car, tinted windows, a bodyguard driver, and you want to evade these people that continually probe and prod at every movement you make. I don't know. It's a it's a big it's a big mess, and I don't I don't think anybody's going to solve it by law, and nobody's going to solve it by guilt. It, it happened, and I hope some people realize that. They could probably get what they want if they just are a little, little more patient and a little more respectful. All right. Um, so it's just a tragedy. I mean, we've got a drunk driver. Um, the the the, uh, the level at which they declare you legally drunk in Britain is a little different than it is here. Uh, how much? I think it was uh, point one seven five or something like it was that. Point two three. 
from what I read two, in the paper. Really? Two, three? That's what I read in the paper. By our standards here, what does that Four mean? Four times. Four times? Yeah, point zero six in California is called presumptive limits of under the influence of alcohol. Now, that blood alcohol level combined with your tests that a, a traffic expert would give you, in other words, on, on your abilities at driving that vehicle, that, that could be presumptive limits of uh, driving under the influence. I've heard a lot of people say that they think probably most of the people in that car might have been tanked, and that's the reason they didn't notice the driver was. At that level of uh, alcohol in the blood, should they not have noticed had they been fully sober and aware that he was not? Well, you know, it's great to say, but uh, I think we can all put ourselves uh, having a good time at a dinner and you know, uh, having a you know bottle of wine, and and uh, they're being responsible, not driving, uh, because the driver that is normally there for them and is normally uh, very effective and proficient, mm -hmm. and responsible, because he isn't. I'm not sure that's a responsibility to notice those things. Uh, I'm sure they just called the maitre d' and said, uh, get the manager, have him get him, get him in a car we want to take him. I mean, these are rich people. Sure. They're not people that go chase this guy down by themselves and say, Would you, here's the keys to the car. <laughs> yeah, just a tragedy. All right. Wild yeah, card. It is, and we, we can't stop tragedies. I mean, look what we do. Every time there's a tragedy, we try to make a new law. You know, Flight 800, now we're making laws about luggage. Princess Diana dies. You know, now we're going to try to make laws about photography. No, I don't think that's not going to work here. And it's not going to, it, none of it's going to work. The justice system is fine. Photographers are going to do what they do. And if somebody wants to do something to an aircraft, they're going to do it. That's fact. Wild card line, you're on the air with Mark Furman. Hello. How you doing today, sir? Okay, where are you? I'm in Twin Falls, Idaho. <laughs> okay, not far from Mark. A no, neighbor. it's not. Uh, we're down in the southeastern end, and he's way up in the northern end. And to qualify myself, I was born and raised in... North Florida, South Georgia. I don't think Mr. Furman is a racist by any means. And I would have one question for him okay. on that subject. It has come to my attention in the very distant past that there was a black man that was charged with a crime. And this is the reason I'm saying he's not a racist. But Mr. Furman was one of the men that went out of his way. I can't remember the name his of the gentleman. But Mr. Furman went out of his way to prove that this black man was innocent. And I think that in itself stands to say that Mr. Furman is not a racist, regardless if he decided to live up at Sandpoint. I don't care. The fact that he went out of his way to help a black man. All right. Well, that brings up a really good topic, Mark. Might as well cover this. Uh, again, I told you I dispatched in, uh, in, in Monterey County, and Seaside was my particular duty. And Seaside was a rough town. It's a rough town. It's got a high percentage black population. Um, there's a lot of crime there, really a lot of crime. And... It's a really thin blue line, because if you're out there on the street and you're seeing black crime all the time, pretty soon you begin to associate black with crime. 
Now, how do you prevent yourself from going over the line and your natural disgust with the amount of crime going on and who's committing it becoming racism? Uh, because that does happen to a lot of cops. Well, you know what? The, first, the, the caller's uh, memory was was very well. The name of the name of that suspect was Eric Harris, and uh, he was he was a black man. And the victim of the homicide was a white man, and he was shot uh, eight times. And uh, you know everything pointed to Eric Harris, and I just had this gut feeling after hours of uh, interrogation. That he knew, but he wasn't the shooter. And I went out and I set out to find out uh, who it was. And I put the word on the street. And I got uh, an informant to tell me who the real shooter was. I made arrangements to keep it confidential. The informant says I won't testify. They witnessed the shooting. I went to great uh, uh, lengths to conceal uh, their identity. Uh, even had them go up freight elevators at the police station for a polygraph. They passed the polygraph. I let Eric Harris go. I knew who the suspect was. The case is still open because by that time the evidence uh, during the search warrant of the true suspect, uh, we could not find the evidence. He would not break. I know the man. He was a suspect in a homicide that I turned another homicide detective uh, onto a year and a half before this. So this was a good case, and the prosecution knew about this. Well, that's what I was about to say. All right, so... Mr. Uh, Clark would not present this. Why not? You know, uh, I did not realize it then, but... Uh, I mean, if you're offering evidence on the other side, and that's allowed uh, into the court, which it probably shouldn't have been, then why not allow this? Well, she could have. It's called a rebuttal case. It's rehabilitating a witness. And yeah. I had so many people that are civilians and policemen, black, Hispanic, female, uh, doesn't matter what ex-partners that were willing to testify on my behalf, but yet they did not want to do it because they did not want to take a position of trying to disprove a negative. Yeah, but once once that had been laid out the way it was, they had an obligation to go after that. They had to go after that, it seems yeah, I, to me. I think, I think you're right. I think the obligation started with Marsha Clark trying to apologize for having to prosecute O.J. Simpson in her opening statements, I think. At that point, her mindset, whether it was obvious or not, it surely is now. All right. Uh, east of the Rockies, uh, you're on the air with Mark Furman. Good morning. Hello? I guess you're not. Uh, west of the Rockies, you're on the air with Mark Furman. Good morning. Yeah, good morning, uh, Art. My name is Jack, and I'm on the Oregon coast. All right. And, uh, yeah, good evening, Mark Furman. Good I didn't evening. think I'd ever talk to you for any reason, but since I, I'm able to... Yeah, I thought that the uh, the uh, Brentwood Slasher's trial was pretty pathetic because I saw probably I'm not sure more than the jury did, but uh, I I looked at the, in fact I saw all of your testimony and I didn't see anything really wrong in your testimony at all. The one thing that that did bug me, the reason I did call, was the fact that uh, they they asked you a question having to do with your position. This is again racist uh, to to do with. Uh, with the fact that you felt that uh, that uh, blacks were well, they implied low life anyway, and that did you did you ever at any time ever refer to them as niggers, okay? And I think they came up with some kind of recording in court. That, that they came up with recordings of a screenplay. Is that a fact? 
a fictional screenplay. Is that a fact? When I was copyrighted, and it, it exists today. Because I was wondering, because everything you said sounded pretty straight to me, and I couldn't believe that, that, that you could just turn it around like that. Well, you know, what's interesting is, is do you see how effective the defense and the media's careful uh, picking and choosing of Well, I think, I think the whole trial, uh, Mark, was pathetic. And the thing is, is Ito, he, he, he wasn't the judge, obviously. And you, you know what? And, and, and hopefully they do not ever do that one again. Well, I, I, I'm with you on that, and I think uh, Judge Ito had his own agenda. What do you think that was? Well, uh, I think it's interesting that his wife uh, and I had a superior or a supervisor-subordinate relationship that's probably the most negative I've ever had on the department, uh, and she seems to have forgotten that. Should he have recused himself? Absolutely. Just at the mere hint, uh, he should have recused himself. If he didn't, then that lingers, and he puts his wife in a, in a terrible position. And I, I think we, c we can only say one thing. How can she forget uh, a circumstance and a relationship that I could bring a dozen policemen into that courtroom and they'll tell you exactly, exactly what happened like it was yesterday? It was so obvious for over uh, a year in that division. You said there were a lot of things, or at least some things, that even to this day... Uh, you have not talked about. I, I, I have an obligation to ask. Would you like to talk about them? <laughs> well, you know, there there are some things that... Um, Even in general terms. Van Adder uh, is not what he truly wants to be. He's even worse than uh, the uh, performance he put on TV when he was trying to defend himself against not allegations, but the, the facts that I presented in my book. And, and I, I wrote uh, three more chapters in an epilogue for the paperback that's coming out in December, and I lay out not only the second search warrant where Marsha Clark was knee-deep in deception, uh, but Phil Van Adder. And I think we really have to uh, look at this exactly what it is and uh, it appears that uh, there was a collective conscious effort to keep my partner Brad Roberts out of this case for some of the most um, obvious reasons once these three chapters are, are read. Uh, and as I said before, uh, Roberts and I found all the evidence at uh, Rockingham, and we, we found the crucial evidence at Bundy. We didn't need any help on this, and I think that had to be kind of ignored. If they brought Roberts in... Uh, somebody's even in the newspaper is bound to catch on and say, "What did we need Ben Adder and Lang for? Furman and Roberts already found all this stuff." Mm -hmm. uh, so I don't know if it was ego, I don't know if it was uh, testimony. Uh, I try to bring out as much uh, in questions as I can. Uh, I, there, there's still there's more that uh, at a point that when I can prove it, I will do so. Uh, but I, you know, just like my book, I will not write anything down that I cannot prove, uh, unlike uh, Lang and Van Adder's book and Marsha Clark's book. I read Marsha Clark's book, and I'll give you an example. All right. Marsha Clark's book gives Brad Roberts one paragraph. Brad Roberts, she says, all Brad Roberts could bring to the case is to say Mark Furman was a stand-up guy. 
that un, all, just all by itself is about the biggest lie I've ever heard. Uh, Brad Roberts, let's just see what Brad Roberts could bring the case. All right, let's. We, we're at a break point here, so um, take care, and uh, we'll be right back to you, Mark. Mark Furman. And uh, coming up, his take on his own partner and what his partner could have brought to the case. I'm Art Bell, and this is Coast to Coast AM. West of the Rockies at 1-800-618-8255. 1-800-618-8255. East of the Rockies at 1-800-825-5033. 1-800-825-5033. This is the CBC Radio Network. Yes, I've been giving you a sneak preview of this superb new Cusco album for several weeks. Well, now it's here. A Permac 3, Nature, Spirit, and Pride. This cut is called Ghost Dance. Just for you, the folks at a higher octave have put together a special offer. You can get this new Cusco album, A Permac 3, for just $15.98 on CD, $9.98 for cassette. Call now, one 800 Five six two eight two eight three, and if you're one of the first twenty-five callers to place an order tonight, your copy will be autographed by Cusco's own Michael Holm, or the limited edition boxed set with all three CDs in Cusco's Aburamac series, along with an autographed poster for just thirty-nine ninety-five. This beautiful box set is not available in stores. What a great gift for you, Cusco lovers! Once again, that's the entire Upper Mac collection. Boxed set. Three CDs for just $39.95. Or Cusco's new Upper Mac 3 album on CD for just $15.98 or $9.98 on cassette plus shipping and handling. Call now for this limited time offer. 1-800-562-8283 or 800-5-OCTAVE and mention Art Bell. Well, there has to be a best at everything, doesn't there? In my way of thinking, Cusco is best at what they do. And the ATS-909 by Sanjin is clearly the best portable radio in the world right now. That is a non-trivial statement. It's the best portable radio in the world. In any category you, came to, uh, you care to mention, sensitivity, selectivity, coverage, uh, resolution in sideband, individual upper and lower sideband filtering, audio quality, Size, so it travels easily. A modern, it's got a really big, big jump, uh, as a matter of fact, on uh, all of what used to be the best radios. It's got, for example, I'll just give you one example of one button you can press that will automatically, when you go into a new city, load all of the AM, FM stations into memories for you. Pretty handy, huh? 
in every single category of measurement, this is the best radio right now in the world. The price is $269.95. And by the way, lesser radios, and here I won't mention any names, went for four and $500, and they didn't get anywhere near this. This really is a bargain. It's the uh, Sanjin ATS-909. If you want one on the way toward you, call them in the morning at 1-800-522-8863. That's 1-800-522-8863. Sea Crane Company. All right. Uh, Mark, you're back on the air again. And... Um, let me ask you this. Uh, it's uh, from Bob in Bakersfield, longtime listener. Uh, and I watched every minute of that trial on television, by the way, Mark, and so did he, apparently. He says, I'm not sure if you can or will ask this question of Mark, but here it is. When he was sitting on the witness stand and F. Lee Bailey asked him if you've ever referred to a black person as a nigger, why didn't he just say, yes, who hasn't? Everyone sometime in their life probably has. Things would have turned out very differently. Do you think, uh, you know, hindsight and all that, that that you would have answered differently? Well, you know, uh, on one hand, uh, first, it's probably the most uncomfortable position that anybody's going to be put, uh, short of being on trial themselves. And it, it's very easy to look backwards uh, when you're not on the spot. You bet. But we have to look, we're not talking about a citizen. We're talking about one of the first detectives on the scene. That's the first thing. The second thing, one of the detectives that found most of the crucial evidence. That's the second thing. Mm -hmm. And the mere question is an indictment. The answer is almost totally irrelevant. So just forget my answer. Let's just say my, my tongue was cut out just seconds before the question was completed. The jury is looking at an LAPD detective first that is asked the question. Now, if you answer it one way, you're a liar. And if you answer it the other way, you're a, you're a liar. Yeah. Or a racist. Well, either way, you're a liar. They don't believe you if you say no. If you say yes, they only think it's worse. You know, the predominantly almost an entirely black jury. To put that question before that jury in a total, ir totally irrelevant issue in this case, probably the most irrelevant issue of any case involving a black defendant in the history of this country, to put that there and Ito allowing that to be put there, he completely routed that case. It was totally unnecessary. It had nothing to do with the case. I tried to litigate Bailey's question. I, I never have called anybody that to their face. Have I used it? Yes. Would I wished that uh, I could? I would have go back there and answer that differently. I can say sure, but it's only for my personal reasons. It has nothing to do with the case. That jury, we know now, was predisposed. No matter what questions were asked in that courtroom. Yeah, I guess they were. Um, East of the Rockies, you're on the air with Mark Furman. Hi. Hi, good evening. This is Matt from Madison, Wisconsin. Hi, Matt. 
Hi. Uh, Mark, I'm going to give you a, uh, a welcome reprieve from the uh, previous questions. This has nothing to do with the O.J. Simpson case whatsoever. Good. Um, this is purely uh, about your opinion as a police officer. Um, I've had a friend who has been through uh, highways in South Dakota several times. He has a VW van, and it's decked out with Grateful Dead stickers, things like that. I can hear um, He's 30 years old and probably hasn't smoked any pot since he was in college. And uh, he's been pulled over twice in South Dakota by a canine highway patrol unit. And the last time he went through there on the way to a concert, the same police officer for the third time um, pulled around in a, on the median, followed him for about five miles, um, drove past him, smiled, and waved. My question is, do you think that the war on drugs has taken such a terrible turn against the casual user, um, especially about marijuana. I mean, obviously in, in L.A. you have you've seen much greater uh, much, much greater problems than marijuana users. And, um, you know, not to put you on, on the spot personally, but as far as a general societal issue, do you really think that, uh, that marijuana use is that great of a danger to society? And I've heard of the stepping stone issues, um, so I'd like to really hear. In other words, eliminate the stepping stone. Okay, we'll eliminate. Well, no, the I'm not eliminate the stepping stone. I mean, I'm, I I started off uh, with alcohol. You know, I was a senior in high school, um, had a few drinks, and it 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 led me. You know, I, I wouldn't say it led me, but I, I ended up smoking marijuana, and um, I've used LSD, cocaine, a couple times. A lot, I'm, I've used a lot of things, but I'm 23 now, and. Um, if I am going to use drugs, I will smoke marijuana occasionally. And I think I've learned from my experiences to know that uh, the other things are not what they are to be. Um, it might be useful to experience those things. And I'm sure many people uh, around arts generation, things like that, are probably of the same idea. Um, but do you think that, that the war against marijuana in particular, um, mandatory minimums especially, imposing five-year sentences, for someone who is growing 10 plants for what they think is medical use um, or for personal use, do you think the penalties are excessive? And uh, and I, uh, you know, I, the comments you've made so far tonight have been very intelligent and have uh, been quite a striking, uh, um, you know, difference from what uh, the media portrayed you as. No, that's that's because this is a different kind of media. Radio is a better place to be. Tell yeah, me. well, radio is the heartbeat of America. you got the time, and you have somebody not constantly interrupting you uh, with a commercial or switching the camera or cutting your mic off. Those are tricks on TV. Well, I'll answer this question. Um, you know, what, what happened to your friend uh, is kind of what happens in an area where the trickle-down of crime gets down to that level. Um, so that's one issue that we really can't address with, without knowing a lot more ingredients. As far as the casual user, it's just like the guy that goes out and has a couple beers with his buddies and the burgers and watches a game. You know, everybody that gets in a car that kills somebody under the influence, which is 25,000 people a year, causes him heartache, and he does nothing wrong. So there, there's... That's the issue with the casual user. You could have a whole bunch of people that are casual users that don't drive, don't affect anybody, don't cause anybody any heartache. 
the problem is, is you have people that take an inch, then they take a foot, then they take a mile. In other words, six plants to for personal use. Somebody says, okay, that's okay. The next guy is 12 plants. I just use twice as much, but he's selling half of it to pay for his habit. You know, it just goes, it's a trickle-down effect, so they have to establish, it's like, Personal possession. How much is a ticket? And how much are you possessing for sale? Well, it can be it can be uh, broken down fairly easily if you know anything about narcotics. You know how much heroin you can use yourself, how much cocaine, how much marijuana, how much of anything you can use yourself, especially when you're carrying it in your pocket. So, I, I have a problem with focusing too much on users of marijuana, but it's like we said before. Sometimes it's a way to get information. If you're talking just about a just a working person that all he does is use uh, marijuana for his personal use, he's going to take the heat for all the people. Well, one of the people he's going to take the heat for is the people that are selling it because he's not selling it just to him. He's selling it to a dozen or two dozen or a hundred people. So, unfortunately, that's just the way it's going to it's going to have to be. And you know, you just have to use judgment on the street as a policeman, you know, who to enforce and who's a waste of time. All right. Well, he asked, this is a good question about mandatory minimums. Now, you get some guy popped for pot who goes in for five years, and uh, the net effect, it seems, of mandatory minimums like this uh, with respect to drugs has been to perhaps kick somebody out the, uh, the other end who committed some sort of... Uh, violent crime and probably well, ought not be back out there. You can't prove that. And I think mandatory minimums, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, I've never seen a mandatory minimum that was ever mandatory in a courtroom in California, but I think the feds have those type of mandatory minimums, do they not? Yeah, they do. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, federal law has been totally ineffective at making penalties or laws that work in states because every state and every city has its unique problems. So I, I would say that the federal law trying to enforce state violations, I, I think that's a problem. And you, I don't know how people in your audience under, understand how the feds and the state laws really interact. Uh, usually the state, if it isn't covered by the state, you look at the feds and see if they'll file the case for you because they have something that would either be more stringent of a penalty or they could handle the case where there really isn't a violation, a clear cut or or serious violation in your state laws. So they they work off each other back and forth. Hmm. Like the RICO Act. It's good states example. Don't have a RICO Act. Mm-hmm. That's right. And so where where the feds can move or the feds can move in some cases where you just can't at all. Yeah, I'll give you an example: carjacking case. You have a problem getting a carjacker because in California for a long time it's simply a robbery. Now a robbery can you know start out at at a year, but if you cross state lines with that interstate transportation of stolen property, then you've got a federal crime. You bet. So you know it's used both ways, and I think that's that's the problem with. I think it is kind of ridiculous. Somebody in possession of you know a bag of marijuana. Uh, to do five years in prison when you're getting guys in robberies doing two. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you uh, if you did a traffic stop and you found somebody in possession of a small amount, 
typically would you uh, take the time to bust them for that, write them a ticket, or uh, what? Well, that was, you know, see, putting, putting me in that position was a long time ago when, you know, when I first came on the department, it was still a felony. Uh, there's a no choice. Misdemeanor, you have a choice. Um, I think it would depend on uh, who I'm dealing with. Am I dealing with uh, some kids? Am I dealing with, uh, you know, uh, working people? Am I dealing with a, a good citizen? Or am I dealing with, uh, with a convict that uh, I'll do anything to be able to take him out of circulation, to be able to see what he's up to, uh, why he's there. So you make those kind of judgments in the street? Oh, absolutely. Uh, I've let so many people go for so many things uh, because uh, they make a mistake. Uh, I've given people uh, rides home that have obviously been drinking because they're, you know, uh, just a hard-working guy that uh, stopped for one too many beers after work and, you know, say, lock up your car, go into the restaurant. You know, uh, drink coffee for a couple hours. Give them a ride home if it's close. You make those calls because it comes back to you. That guy might see a cop someday getting uh, the hell kicked out of him and help him because somebody helped him at one time. So, you know, it works both ways. On the other hand, you see uh, some guy I know is on parole that's had uh, three beers and he's driving a car and it might be a busy night. Well, I've got a parolee here It's on parole for robbery. And uh, I have an opportunity to take him to the station, shake him down, see what's going on, see what he's doing, call his parole officer, get a parole search on the car, parole search on his apartment, I'm going to do it. Uh, the King case. Your take on the King case. Rodney King? Yeah. Well, um, the, the first thing I'll say is Rodney King... Uh, dictated that he was going to be stopped. Uh, nobody was staked on the freeway waiting to stop Rodney King. The second thing I'll say is when he was stopped, he had two passengers. A lot of people forget this. Two passengers that did not fight, did not resist, were handcuffed. Right. Not a foul word. They were placed in the police car, not a scratch. Mr. King decided that he was going to fight and continue to fight, and he did. Now, if the officers went too far at certain points, that's not up to me to decide because I haven't seen the entire tape and I don't have all the evidence. But I'll tell you one thing. There was no racism involved there. They did not dictate that stop. Mr. King dictated that stop, and he could have got in the car just like his two friends, and nothing would have occurred. And I think of recent, I think he's in custody again for beating up his wife, is he not? Oh, he's been in and out of trouble ever since. What a shock. And he was on parole when he was stopped. For robbery. You think uh, if it had been a white business person in a suit, it would have ended the same way, uh, given the same sort of behavior? Yeah, I do. I, and I'll tell you one reason why is a lot of those policemen uh, were very young on the job. Uh, Stacy Kuhn was the only real veteran there, and he was trying to control a lot of things going on there. He's not supposed to get hands-on unless it really came down to a life-or-death situation. But you had a lot of policemen there that weren't too too large either. And Rodney King was pretty big. Yeah. Uh, so tying up with this guy in, in, you know, a fist fight or choking him out, which a lot of people forget. They took that away from Los Angeles Police Department several years before. Uh, one person getting a bar arm control on his uh, neck 
would have rendered him unconscious in about 10, 15 seconds, and that situation would have been done. If today was 20 years ago, uh, Mark, and you, you were going to go into the academy in today's atmosphere, would it be a different choice? You mean start in 1997? Yeah. I wouldn't do it. Law enforcement has changed uh, quite possibly forever. And uh, it's unfortunate because uh, people better realize something. Uh, it's still 1880 out there. We just have cars. <laughs> that really is true. Welsh of the Rockies, you're on there with Mark Furman. Good morning. Hi. Hi. Where are you? Um, our, I'm in Sacramento on KEST. Okay. But I used to live in Pacific Grove, and Seaside's changed a little. Everybody's moved to Marina. <laughs> <laughs> I see. <laughs> so you might want to know. It's been a while. Yeah. Okay, um, Mr. Furman, yeah. um, it's nice to speak with you. Um, I'm sorry about all that trial stuff. Um, it certainly didn't make you look very good, um, but um, you seem to be really honest gentleman, very knowledgeable, and um, I wanted to ask you something about, I I don't know if it was a rumor or if I heard correctly, did you ever see a UFO? <laughs> did, I, did I ever see it? No. <laughs> yeah, or have you seen any since you've no. been up there? No, I, I, you know, I'm usually either on radio or asleep uh, at night, so... Um, Couldn't afford a lot of time looking up anyway. No, you know, I'll, I'll tell you, I, it's, it's a very interesting subject. Roswell has always been a very interesting uh, uh, subject for me, uh, you know, Roswell in 1947. Um, and it, I'll tell you, Roswell is probably the best example of uh, a case where a couple good detectives should be on that because there's been a lot of uh, things that nobody seems to want to explain, and they can't explain them. Um, and I find it odd that they don't want to. The did, did, Mark, did you see the Air Force news conference trying to the latest explanation for Roswell? You know the dummies and all the stuff they draw. Oh yeah, that stand-up comedy act they had. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and, and that shows you how threatened they are by the heightened interest of this. And, I, and I'll give you my my slant on this. If they were working with experimental aircraft, okay, that's 1947. We came out with a stealth fighter. We only worked on that for about eight years, and we came out with that. What could they possibly have in 1947 they were working on that they don't want to disclose after they disclose the stealth fighter? Yeah, beats me. I mean, it's silly. Um, the only thing that they want, maybe do not want to disclose is something that they can't explain, and they don't want anybody investigating it, whatever. Um, either, they, either they can't explain it because it's theirs, or they won't explain it because it's out of their control. I, I think the latter is probably the truth. I mean, what couldn't they explain that they were working on in the under the uh, the effort of national security or a war or a peacetime machine to stop war or an aircraft or a spacecraft? You know how egotistical can we be? We you know, put you really... people on the moon. We put it. We put spacecraft on Venus and Mars. We think there might be life on Mars microscopic as it is, but still life, and yet we're so egotistical, we're the only people in a finite universe. You really, really raise a good point. There have been a lot of ufologists, basically amateur investigators, uh, compared to somebody with a career as a detective. It would be an interesting, interesting assignment, wouldn't it? Oh, it'd be great. I'd love it. <laughs> to go after it as a detective, a trained detective. Oh, absolutely. Detective. Whichever the way the chips fall, too. 
you report not what you want, but you report what really occurred. And I think the one thing that, that people don't understand in this is there's people that have nothing to gain and actually are very afraid of even talking until Lieutenant Marcellus uh, was getting ready to die. Is the only he was the intelligence officer that was first assigned to go out and look at this wreckage. Do you mean Major Marcel? Oh, I'm sorry, Major. Major. Yes. Mm -hmm. And uh, listen, you know, we're, oh, we're at the top of the hour here. Are you good to go? Are you awake still? Yeah, I could go another half hour. All right, let's do it then. Um, stay right there and relax, and we will continue. My guest is retired Detective Mark Furman. on the wild card line at 702-727-1295. That's 702-727-1295. First-time callers can reach Art Bell at 702-727-1222. 702-727-1222. Now, here again, Art Bell. If you would like to get the attention of your dancing queen, might I suggest absolutely fresh flowers. This is a flower farm in Southern California. Only thing they do is grow miniature carnations. That's all they do. They do one thing, and they do it absolutely correctly. Now, when you order from them, you get as many flowers as you would get if you were buying wholesale. That's a fact. That's so many flowers that it is astounding to the person in receipt. <laughs> Your dancing queen. They come in a large triangular box, just packed in there, all these miniature carnations, along with a card from you, very personalized, handwritten, your message of love and caring, whatever you want to say, and your name at the bottom, handwritten, quite a service. Delivered, $42.95. You call today, they deliver tomorrow by FedEx. Boom, like that. It's 1-800-562-6438. one 800 800-562-6438. Now, wireless com. If you don't have credit or you have bad credit, your chances of getting a cellular phone are slim and zero. They'll laugh you. Well, they may not laugh if they're polite, but inside they'll be laughing. You know, people without good credit or no credit, which amounts to about the same thing, can't get cellular phones because they've been ripped off too much. It's just a fact. So here comes a new industry. It's called prepaid cellular. It's kind of like a prepaid phone card. They load so much. You pay cash. They load so much use into a card, and away you go in business. For you, it is an investment opportunity. It requires $8,400 minimum investment, and they will ask you questions to determine that you can invest that kind of money. But then they will send you a free investment kit and video cassette outlines the whole thing. Remember, it's an investment, not a guarantee. You consider the idea, 
as you would any investment, and decide for yourself. The material is absolutely free. The number to call is 1-800-444-1050. That's 1-800-444-1050. Are you overweight? Would you like to lose an average 8 to 10 pounds in the next month? We know that fiber helps sweep fat out of the digestive tract like a broom, reducing the amount of fat your body stores as excess weight. Well, let me tell you about a revolutionary fiber. Kytosan. It's a natural fiber that comes from shellfish. It not only sweeps fat, but also absorbs up to ten times more fat than other fibers. You can get this fiber in a formula called Kytoslim. Kytoslim is effective because you can lose weight without changing your eating habits. And there are no stimulants. It's a gentle, effective way to lose excess weight. Here's the special offer. When you order a 90-day supply of Kaito Slim, you'll get an antioxidant moisturizing cream absolutely free. Call 1-800-557-4627. It's guaranteed to work or your money back, and it's not available in stores. So call 1-800-557-4627. That's 1-800-557-4627. You've got nothing to lose but the fact. All right, Mark, you're back on the air. Question. Uh, in the police force, particularly LAPD, and you can probably comment now that you're gone. I was in the Air Force, and it was widely understood and known in the Air Force that if somebody didn't like you uh, and they wanted to come after you, they would keep coming until they got you. Is that particularly true in the LAPD as well? Well, yeah, I, I think you know, I think any big organization, you know, you have uh, you have people that uh, you work for that protect you. That's right. Because you're you're serving a, a function that they need, and then you have the people that uh, are really uh, against that, or they've, they're actually on, on a, a polar opposite. And I'll give you an example. You have you have people that work the streets, and people that are the detectives that promote up the ranks, usually up to about captain. Those people are good uh, supervisors and leaders. And they protect policemen and detectives that are go doing good police work. And I don't mean protect them from uh, them committing crimes or, or uh, personnel complaints. What they do is, is they protect them in so much as allowing them to do their job and what they're good at. In other words, keep them in positions and keep them supplied with equipment and opportunities to do their job well. You have other administrators that call that... Uh, a, a cowboy. That's right. And uh, they don't like that, and I truly believe they don't like that because they were never any good at it, and that's why they became commanders and chiefs, because they went up the supervision ladder because they really couldn't cut it as street cops. Administrative. Uh, administrative. Yeah. Hey, I, I can't even imagine why you'd want to be a policeman and be an administrator. I, I, it's just they just don't go hand in hand. Did you have a reputation as a cowboy? Yeah, I think I was, uh, you know, um, I'm not going to say I was pretty much by the book, uh, but still I was, I used a lot of imagination, you know, and surveillances and interrogation and and uh, different ways to catch people and, uh, you know, uh, analyze crime crime trends. And, and uh, I went out there, and if uh, somebody was going to mix it up, I never backed away. So that isn't uh, a macho thing. It's that's what we're supposed to do, and I, no, it's not even what we're supposed to do. We can't do anything else. 
you know, you just don't have policemen backing away from a, a situation where there's a, you know, shooting or a fight. You spend a lot of time uh, sitting there getting chewed out. No, quite the opposite. I had 55 commendations. Uh, I had supervisors that asked me to work for them. I had units that wanted me to work for them. But then again, these are people that wanted police work done, and they really didn't care about some silly program that some uh, political administrator came up with that would make him look good at a Chamber of Commerce luncheon. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, I know silly. exactly what you mean, yeah. All right. Um, uh, with limited time, let's go to line one. You're on the air with Mark Furman. Good morning. Good morning. Where, where, are, you, where are you, sir? Michael, I'm calling you from Portland, Oregon. Portland, all right. Yes. Nice town. Uh, I have a, uh, some questions for you, Mr. Furman. Uh, first of all, uh, there are a couple of organizations. One is called Men Against Women, and another is called White Anglo-Saxon Police. Uh, these are uh, supremacist organizations. They're, they're what? White supremacist organizations. Oh, and where do they exist? Uh, my information uh, is that there are law enforcement officers that are uh, members of this um, or these organizations, and did you once comment um, regarding WASP, which is the acronym for White Anglo-Saxon Police, did you once comment, I am the Grand Dragon, I am the Hood? That was White Anglo-Saxon Protestant, sir. Well, no, that's the normal acronym, White Anglo-Saxon yes. Protestant, yes. but this organization is also called WASP, okay, and so White Anglo-Saxon Police. And your question was, did he I, comment what? Did you once comment that, that uh, you, uh, regarding your possible alleged association with this group, I am the Grand Dragon, I am the Hood? Oh, absolutely. You did? Oh, yes. That was in the screenplay tapes for a fictional screenplay, and I'll bet you never guess what the name of the screenplay is. It's copyrighted. What is the name? Men Against Women. What a shock. <laughs> Where did most of your information come from, sir? The media? Pardon me? Where did most of your information come from? The My media? information comes from uh, an excellent, excellent, uh, exhaustive researcher. Uh, who? Uh, by the name of Dave Emery, who interviewed three authors of books um, about about uh, you, about the case. I, I'd love to know what authors, because there's okay, been no, there's been, there's, there's been no author of any book that you, even... You All right, hold on, hold on, sir. Okay. Let, let Mark finish. The, you know what's interesting is a lot, of the, a lot has been written about me, and nobody's asked me. In fact, nobody's even asked one of my partners. In mm -hmm. fact, nobody's even asked one of my supervisors. In fact, if one of these, one of these authors would be... Oh, Let's see, we, we'll probably, uh, Jeffrey Tubin, um, who never talked to me. I'm sorry, uh, it's hard to hear you here. I'm well, the, the point is, is you have no information, absolutely none. You just okay. have people that want... My information stand. comes from these, this interview with these authors. I'm, I'm merely asking you this question. But they're quoting something that he said in a screenplay. All right, all right. Uh, um... Let me see. Did you ever plant drugs and or money on people, primarily people of color? Sir, everything you're talking about is in a fictional screenplay research tape to give a woman stuff to write about that had no 
idea what went on in the TV police episodes, let alone the real street. All right. Well, we'll leave it there. Obviously, it came from the screenplay. You wanted to say something earlier about your partner, and you said uh, there's a lot that could be said about your partner that never came out. Oh, I mean, you, look, you look at Brad Roberts. Brad Roberts is, is with me, sees a bloody finger. Brad Roberts goes to Rockingham with me after I return to Bundy momentarily to inspect the one glove there. He goes back. He finds, I explain everything that had occurred at Rockingham. He looks into the Bronco, and now because the sun had come up, he finds blood in the Bronco. We call Phil Van Adder over to the Bronco. He sees it, gets very excited. Brad Roberts finds the blood trail. I'm finding the blood trail. Brad Roberts and I find the blood in the foyer. Brad Roberts and I find the knife box upstairs by the bathtub. Brad Roberts and I see the black socks at the end of the bed at about 7.30, quarter to 8 in the morning. Brad finds the uh, black sweats in the washing machine. Brad Roberts finds a blood transfer on the maid's half bath, his feet from the washing machine. Is that right? Well, if all of that is true, how can a passionate, and she certainly seemed passionate, Marsha Clark, not want to put Brad Roberts up there to, to back up every word you said? Well, I think, I think I'll answer it with some questions. Did Phil Van Adder find the blood inside the Bronco? I'm going to tell you right now. I'm standing there when the blood's found. He did not. If he found it before that, okay, that's fine. Kind of sounds like two independent observations and conclusions by two experienced veteran detectives is even more powerful than one, is it not? <laughs> but the problem is, is once Brad Roberts and I have all this evidence that we found, they have no more thunder. Brad Roberts also talked to O.J. Simpson before anybody did, and he made statements about what's going on here. And Brad finally says, well, there's a blood trail that leads from Bundy right up here. He starts hyperventilating and sweating and saying, oh, man, oh, man, oh, man, just chanting it. Really? I had Brad Roberts immediately after O.J. Simpson left with Phil Van Adder. I said, Brad, go in and write down everything he said right now. Uh -huh. That is in the homicide book. That is in the homicide book that the defense has also. And don't think that everything that I said... The defense doesn't know. They knew it before my book came out. That's what made them so fearful. If the prosecution would have played the case down the line, the way things happen, instead of taking detours around things that they didn't want to deal with because of Van Adder's mistakes, this would have went down, and then at least we would have presented the case and done the investigation unquestionably guilt. And whatever the jury did then, that's their business. But... You're, you're making a case that all this was done to, in essence, cover Van Adder's mistakes. Well, I'll tell you this. Uh, what, did, wasn't it way beyond that in, in importance? Well, you know, we have to look. Who sets the wheels in motion? I'm going to give you a little hint on the paperback version of my book. All right. In the second search warrant, on June 28th, we go back to search for what? Black sweats? A knife. Evidence, was evidence a, of a knife? Yeah. Any blood? Didn't we already find the black sweats? Yep. Didn't we already find an open and empty knife box? Empty, yes. In the search warrant, it says we're going to go back and look for a knife in, in places that could be concealed. Well, let me tell you something. You couldn't have hit a toothpick any place in that 
place that we didn't look. I was under the house. I was on the roof. We we turned over and took pictures off the wall. We we did everything. I'll tell you right now, we went back in that second search warrant, and there were things that were already found. Black sweats were already found. That was not in the search warrant. And I'm gonna, there's something very interesting in the search warrant. Van Adder describes a blood trail leading up the driveway, but he never mentions that he sees blood in the Bronco. <laughs> Seeing blood in the Bronco connects that Bronco to that blood trail. Absolutely. So then wh why no mention? Well, I, I think that's the, the big question. One would be that you didn't see it there, so you're the affiant in the search warrant. Why would he testify that he did? I can understand, uh, to some degree, some protection. But once they saw things falling apart, uh, to continue to protect Van Adder, as you're suggesting, when you're obviously blowing the case is going up in smoke, at some point Van Adder is not that important. Well, you have to look at another thing here, too. you got to see where my testimony stopped and why. The prosecution, their direct testimony on me, stopped after my discovery of the glove and my interview with Cato Kalin. Right. Why? I could establish the black socks were there at 7.30, quarter to 8, 8 o'clock. The black socks that came into question that, that they weren't there at that time. The, the Swiss Army knife box. And, and it's clear why I couldn't testify after that point. They didn't take the knife box. They didn't take the black sweats. They didn't recover the blood transfer from the maid's half bath. Let's just think with that blood transfer on the maid's light switch cover in the half bath next to the laundry room. That blood was O.J. Simpson's. What's he doing in that maid's half bath? Of course. He's very close to the washing machine. Did he put his sweats in there? Sees himself bleeding. Goes into the maid's half bath. Turns on the light switch with his bleeding finger. The light switch was on the left side. He would have used his left hand to do that. Right. Goes in there, looks in the mirror. Was there blood in the sink? Probably. Did he get something to stop the bleeding? Probably. But we could have put him in a maid's half bath next to those sweats. Well, I'm looking. Absolutely damning. And, and the knife box. People say, but you didn't have the knife. It's more powerful. Just days before the murder, he's back in Connecticut getting samples of Swiss Army knives. He makes a statement to a driver, a limo driver, that he displays one of the bigger knives and says, you could hurt somebody with this, you could even kill somebody. That driver takes a polygraph days days before the, um, just days before the second search warrant is, is written. None of this is in the second search warrant. He passes the polygraph. Now look what you have. You have this statement combined with him absolutely obtaining, possessing, and displaying and making this statement. Now you have, on the very day his wife is murdered, a knife box from that came from that corporation in Connecticut that that driver saw missing. That's more powerful than finding the knife on the road with no fingerprints and the blood of both victims. Because, Mr. Simpson, where's the knife that goes in the box? How are you... Uh... How are you doing living with all this now? Oh, I'm fine. I didn't do anything wrong. I understand. But, I mean, it must be, it's a, it's a terribly frustrating end uh, to a career, knowing what you know, 
is terribly frustrating. I mean, you must roll this over a million times, or did all that training of all those 20 years of being able to put something behind you, uh, is that with you now and aiding you now? Well, you know, I'll never be able to put this behind me, but, you know, what I feel in my heart, and the same thing as Brad Roberts and Ron Phillips feels, you know, we did everything right that day. We gave them everything on a silver platter. What they did with it, they threw it in the garbage. Uh, We did nothing wrong. And, uh, you know, I wonder how Phil Van Etter feels about the mistakes he made. Uh, You know, I'm not somebody to to beat somebody to death with something, and and I think I would have been kinder and a little more objective with him uh, and maybe maybe a, a little little more forgiving if he just would admit some mistakes. But have you ever talked to him about it? No, they won't. They won't debate with me. They won't go on the same TV show. But, you know, it's not surprising that they tried to attack me when I came out with the book, and every TV show they went on, they had a different story because every time they came up with something, I had something that I was holding back that I destroyed them with, and they had to change the story again. Okay, well, uh, Los Angeles has been listening carefully to this, I'm sure, this morning. Uh, we're on KBC down there. If Phil Van Adder would like to come on and debate you at some point in the oh, future, sure. you're no up problem. for that. You're up for it, huh? Sure. All right. We're almost out of time. Wildcard line, you're on the air. Uh, good morning. Hello? Hello. You're on the air with Mark Furman. Gee, Art Bell, I didn't realize a person had to hold so long to get on your show. How are you doing, Mark Furman? Good. How are you? Okay. He's popular. <laughs> <laughs> hey, you know, I've been listening to most of your interview, and uh, along with a lot of other people, I always thought O.J. Simpson was guilty, and uh, I think it was a damn shame that you were made a scapegoat on that. And, um, you know, what else happens when you take a pile of money, a big pile, and hide the truth somewhere behind it? Isn't that the truth? Yeah, actually, during the trial, what I said was that I thought that there was enough money there that he actually purchased reasonable doubt. <laughs> Absolutely. And uh, as far as somebody saying the N-word, hey, you know, you can poll any 1,000 people of different ethnic or origin and ask them if they've ever called somebody that was different, you know, an ethnic slur. And, uh, I mean, if they were honest, hey... You know, whatever. But I just want to let you know, uh, how do you like the northern Idaho area? Well, you know, it's it's great. I, I grew up in western Washington, so this is like returning home to me. So it, it's great, and I'm having a great time up here. Are you among friends? Oh, yeah. I've been among, among friends any place. Like it's that. a big uh, retirement community for police, isn't it? Oh, I don't mean friends like that. I mean just everybody I meet. Uh, I, make, I make friends in every city I go. Well, all different kinds of people. So you're happy there? Oh, yes, absolutely. All right. Well, listen, the half hour is over. I wish it wasn't. Uh, I could go on and on, but uh, why don't we let this one hang in the air, and maybe I'll get a fax or something from uh, Mr. Van Adder. That's fine. If you get that, make sure it's uh, the gloves are off. (laughs) And tell him that. All right. You got it. Okay. All right. Thanks a lot, Art. Thank you, Mark, and take care. You too. All right. That's Mark Furman. It's 2.30. He stayed up uh, late with us. I'm Art Bell. Coming up, open lines. This is Coast to Coast AM.
toll-free. West of the Rockies at 1-800-618-8255. 1-800-618-8255. East of the Rockies at 1-800-825-5033. 1-800-825-5033. This is the CBC Radio Network. It is. I'm Art Bell. To get a copy of the program you just heard, uh, you're welcome to call 1-800-917-4278. That's 1-800-917-4278. Mark Furman is a good interview, isn't he? I'm afraid I've got some bad news for you in a moment here. Uh, we've just been able to confirm it, so I'm just now going to get it on the air. Are you working 9 to 5? Well, if so, there is a way out for you. There really is a way out. And it really does work. Commodities trading. And uh, that means coffee, cattle, beans, that sort of thing. And a lot of people think it's a, a good way to go broke. And actually it is if you don't know what you're doing. Ken Roberts is a man who knows what he's doing and can teach you. He has taught thousands of people who are the ones who are consistent winners now in trading commodities. He doesn't tell you what to invest in. Instead, he teaches you how to invest. It's not a get-rich-quick scheme, though many have become wealthy. It's a very unique way of uh, doing this. In other words, you invest on paper as you are learning, not using real money, but investing on paper as though you were. And only when you're absolutely confident you know what you're doing do you switch to money. And so if you don't become confident, obviously... You don't risk money. All you've got to do is make one free call. They will send you what they call their money kit. It's an audio tape and a 44-page report lays the whole thing out. And you go from there. So the first step is without obligation, no obligation whatsoever, and it is free. Call 1-888-GOLD-KRC. That's 1-888-G-O-L-D-K-R-C. Give me a minute to tell you about Ruthie and Larry Brown. You know, I've given GMX my personal endorsement for a long time now. In fact, this month I think I begin my third year working with the Browns. I like their GMX water conditioner, and I guess you do too, because we've sure sold a bunch of them. But for all their success, the Browns are as real as their product. They have an office in their home in Colorado, talking to folks, sending information in GMX magnetic units all across America. GMX is the way to eliminate hard water problems. You know, that ugly white buildup known as scale, calcium, alkali, whatever you want to call it. It is ugly and damaging to your plumbing. It's easy. No salt, no electricity. No ongoing costs. And GMX magnetic units come with a 90-day money-back ironclad guarantee and a lifetime warranty. You really should give them a call at 1-800-406-0469. Once you've experienced the spectacular benefits of GMX magnetic water conditioning, you may want to go into business for yourself, and Larry and Ruthie can help you. That's 1-800-406-0469. Tell them Art Bell told you to call. That's 1-800-406-0469. As many of you know, Daniel Brinkley is a very good friend of mine. Daniel Brinkley, I have just been informed, 
is in the hospital in intensive care with an aneurysm. The aneurysm is hemorrhaging on the right side of his brain. The bleeding is continuing, uh, apparently, at this hour. We just received a call from his cousin. I'm not going to release the uh, name of the hospital that he's in because the hospital would be under siege. But apparently, uh, Danyan is uh, stable. Uh, they're, they're reporting his condition as stable, but at the same time, they're reporting that uh, he has an aneurysm that is hemorrhaging in his brain, right side. And his cousin asks, and I certainly second this, that you send any thoughts and prayers and energy that you can muster to try and heal Danian's brain, to try and heal this aneurysm and stop the bleeding. Danian has had a heart condition for a very long time. For that heart condition, he takes blood thinners. He's between a rock and a hard place right now because if he doesn't take the thinners, his blood clots and he has a heart attack. When he does take the blood thinners and you begin to have a problem like an aneurysm, a bleeding aneurysm, and then, of course, uh, you're risking bleeding to death. So his situation is grave. And believe it or not, I guess he's conscious, and he was able to talk with his cousin, who talked to me a short time ago. And he, his concern was to let those of you who have ordered books from him personally, autographed books, know that he'll get the rest of the books out soon. That's what he wanted me to say on the air. Uh, so, we have taken the time since we got this call to confirm the fact that he is indeed in the hospital. I wanted to be very sure that the information I had was accurate. Before I went on the air with it, I have confirmed it. So, I would ask uh, that everybody put out a thought and a prayer for Daniel, if you can. I know he's not afraid to die. And I know that's what he'd be saying. But I'd just soon not lose him. So, uh, if you can give him a thought, I would appreciate that. And for him, not that I would think I should have to ask, but those of you who ordered books, uh, please be patient. He's in uh, intensive care. So, let me tell you, uh, if you hear me disappear in the next couple of days, it will be because I've spoken to Daniel and I'm on my way back to where he is. Because if it gets to that, I will go. So I'm really sorry to hear that, and uh, 
Danian's always, of course, lived on the edge uh, with his health ever since what happened to him happened. He's had uh, any number of physical ailments, and he's always known that nearly anything can kill him. I just hope this isn't it, because the world's a better place when he's around. So, Daniel, uh, if you're out there and you're listening and you want me to come, I'll be on my way. Say the word. And I guess there's some other people I should tell. So, uh, there you have it. I'm sorry to be dropping that on you, but... Uh, I thought you should all know, and if there's a way to muster a lot of energy to somebody's benefit, Daniel needs it now. News-wise, um, the only other story that I consider of great significance is now picked up by Drudge as well. It's going to be on 60 Minutes this Sunday. Retired Russian General Alexander Levitt tells Sunday's 60 Minutes that Russia's military... This is absolutely incredible. Has lost track of 100 suitcase-sized nuclear bombs. CBS's Steve Croft investigates the terrifying possibility in a segment titled The Perfect Terrorist Weapon. Well, that's 100 suitcase-sized nuclear bombs. How the hell could they lose 100 suitcase-sized nuclear bombs? For the first time publicly, Levitt admits that the, get this, one kiloton devices, which are highly concealable, relatively easy to detonate by one person, are no longer under the control of the armed forces of Russia. In a private briefing to a delegation of U.S. congressmen last May in Moscow, he said he believed 84, 84 were unaccounted for, he tells 60 minutes he believes the figure is now more like 100. These weapons in any size of a city could immediately, one of them, kill 100,000 people. That's absolutely incredible. So if you're in a big city, you might want to give this one a little bit of thought. If you're in Jerusalem this morning, you might want to give it a lot of thought. One hundred nuclear weapons. So, I don't know, those, I guess, are the two pieces of news. You may want to respond uh, to what you heard with regard to the Mark Furman interview. You may want to say something about Danian. You may want to say something about 100 suitcases out there with the equivalent of 100 kilotons of nuclear uh, a mass death. Now, I wonder where they could be. West of the Rockies, you're on the air. Hello. Hi, Art. Let me be one of the first to wish uh, well to Danny and his family. Yes, thank you. Uh, this is kind of tied in with, well, I don't want to call it prophecy, but uh, you, you don't uh, tape your shows that don't have a guest on, huh? 
Um, I yes, we tape all shows, but but we don't make available programs generally on tape, you know, to the public that are not guest programs. Because uh, I'm referring back to your uh, prediction shows for this pre-New Year. I was one that came in as number eleven. My prediction at that time was, and it's uh, I don't know if you find this believable or not, but if you get to hear the tape, I said no less than four people will be in an accident. Uh, prominent people, celebrities. And then you had pressed me, oh, uh, celebrities, four at once? I said, simultaneously, they're going to be in an accident. Uh, two of them will be celebrities, and they might be with their wives or companions. Mm-hmm. And this Diana thing comes about. Well, you know, I maintain those uh, those records all year and pull them out at the end of every year when we do the new predictions. Yeah. So you'll we'll have an opportunity to, to crow. Well, I think like when you wrote it down, you had said, uh, four people or four celebrities will be, and then I modified it to two celebrities with their companions, so that's why it would make news. Uh, I was also on the side predicted the Mel's Hole prediction, so that's two in a row. All right. Well, uh, I guess we should consult you. But, you know, because uh, I haven't heard anybody really, you know, I'm not really going out around town saying, hey, I predicted somebody's death or whatever, but... Uh, uh, they did mention how you know Diana had a psychic and all that kind of thing, and she uh, really didn't. Uh, they probably didn't tell her, you know, watch out, something's. Going now, on. if you had if you had said Diana, oh well, then I'd be. Uh, we'd we'd be putting you in a lab. That's right, uh, taking you apart piece by piece. I tell you, but uh, you know, this is like my second year in a row that something came so close to how how it was predicted and. Uh, Case, but All right. Well, how did you how did how did you get that information? I actually uh, had I was laying on my back in bed, and you said, "Come up with your predictions for this year." The year prior, my prediction was that uh, there was going to be a swarm of aircrafts uh, landing uh, with trouble. I remember that. Yeah. So. You know, God, I remember that. We did go over that, and you know, this particular year. That was my prominent thought was this, uh, you know, I didn't want to predict death. I just had four people be in an accident. Uh, so four, four, I said no less than four people because I was thinking it could be somewhere like at a concert and the sure. stage collapse or whatever. And then you, you pressed it saying four celebrities all at once. And I said, well, it'll be two celebrities and their wives or whatever. All right. Well, I, I will, uh, I promise at the appropriate time, give you credit. Uh, we'll pull those out. We do predictions between Christmas and New Year's uh, every year. As a ritual, I've done that for too many years now. And so we'll pull that out and uh, give you a ding, 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 ding when the time comes. East of the Rockies, you're on the air. Hello. Good morning, Art. How are you doing this morning, sir? Well, um, okay. Uh, have they still got your potential rain or your rains and all that out in uh, Perot? Perump? Perump, sir. Perump. <laughs> Um, no, it has cleared, thankfully, um, and I hope we get one more day of clear because the ground can't take anymore. So uh, a day or two of clear, and maybe we're out of the woods. No, Theon. I had a question. Uh, just your opinion on uh, the uh, uh, your interview with Mark Berman. Yes. Uh, do you think basically that trial, the criminal trial involving Mr. Simpson, was basically he was declared not guilty in part for the simple fact that the powers that be that were involved in that trial were very apprehensive about the fact that they were going to have a repeat of the results of the Rodney King trial. Where 
where they had rioting in Los Angeles. My understanding from people that lived in that area, they were very concerned. Uh, they said they were afraid that they were going to have something that would make the riots fall on the Rodney King. Well, are you asking, do I think the prosecution uh, did not present a full case because of that? Is that what you're asking? Uh, it, I would say in a roundabout way, uh, sure, take it from that angle if you would. I would say that I wouldn't dismiss it as a possibility, but I don't know it to be true. Okay. I'm not trying to evade your question. I just I, that's the best I can do. Well, that that pretty well sums it up. I was just kind of curious as to what your thoughts might be on that. I, I tried calling uh, when Mark was on as uh, your guest, and I couldn't get through until just now. Right. Um, I, I appreciate your call, and I can't dismiss what you have said. But it's hard to imagine that a prosecutor uh, who whose reputation in future, to some degree, would rest on a getting a conviction, not losing a, a what seemed to be an ironclad case, would do something like that, or, or it could be talked into doing something like that. That's like throwing a baseball game or something, you know? Somebody sits you down and says, well, look, you know, here, here are the real, here are the, here's the real law of nature. You better follow it, you know, if you want to see... Uh, your career continue, this is what's going to happen. In effect, offering you a deal you can't refuse. I have a hard time believing that, but I don't dismiss the possibility. First time caller line, you're on the air. Hello, Art. Hello, sir. Uh, Art, the reason I'm calling, uh, uh, I heard the uh, interview with uh, Mr. Furman tonight. Yes. And... Uh, I, I take exception to what he said, to a lot of things he said. What? Uh, Specifically. First of all, uh, he, uh, he lied to the jury, and uh, he, he more or less said the reason he lied is... Uh, Having you, are you referring to the use of the N-word? Yes. And he said that the reason he lied is, is because the, uh, the jury was black, and uh, uh, once he lied, uh, he destroyed his credibility... Well, the only time that I know of that they were able to prove that he used the N-word was in that script. Okay, well, a, fi a, a, piece of, or not, a, uh, a piece of fiction. Now, um, I guess your statement can stand, technically, that he lied. Have you ever used the word? No. Well, yes, he did, well, uh, in, a, in a fictional script. So... Well, I, I asked him that. I said, look, um, if you could go back now and you could answer differently, would you? And he said yes. Right. Yeah, well, he would answer differently. I also, but, but... I, I also asked him, do you think that cost the trial? And he said, absolutely not. Well, I disagree with that. I, I think... You know, I, I might, too, and I, th I think I said so at the time, that that might have cost the trial. It might have. Well, I, I think it was one of the, the most uh, important things uh, in, in the whole trial. Uh, here's the member of the uh, Los Angeles Police Department lied on the stand. He destroyed his credibility, the credibility of the Los Angeles Police Department, the prosecution, and everything else. Uh, uh, I, I absolutely believe that uh, he was one of the most uh, uh, mitigating factors uh, that, that lost the trial. 
Well, I don't necessarily disagree with you. I, I too, thought that was a, a definite turning point. But he, he brought up an awful lot of things this morning that I've never heard before. How about you? Well, I didn't hear the whole program, but but I but I heard that part, and uh, and, and I was more or less shocked when when he uh, when he answered the way he did. Uh, well, you know, all right. Having said, having said, sir, having said that, technically you're correct. You can also make another argument, and that is that the spirit of the question was: Have you ever used that word in a serious vein? In out here in real life, not not in something no, that, that you're that writing, wasn't the way it was at, not in so. something you're writing for a novel. And, and it's reasonable to say the spirit of the question didn't include whatever he might have done for fiction. Well, fiction or not, he was asked a straight question. Understand by uh, Mr. F. Lee Bailey. Yeah, but if I bring Tom Clancy or some other big author on the air here, and I ask them, "Have you ever used the N-word?" Right. Uh, and they say no. It is reasonable they would say no, referring to their own life, their real life. But in a book, I'm not saying it has, but in a book Clancy or some other author may have written, it may have been used in a work of fiction. I don't think that exactly counts in the spirit of the question. Well, I think it counts in a court of law when, when he's sworn to tell the truth. Well, yeah, there you are. So no, he said, look, he said, yeah, I agree. Uh, so he and, said. So that destroyed his credibility. Knowing, look, hindsight, hindsight, sir, is indeed 2020, uh, if not better, and it's easy to look back and say that now. Right. And, and sure, he'd answer it differently, knowing what he now knows about the way it turned out. Right. I but it was kind of a parlor trick. Well, it was a trick. Uh, it was a parlor trick, but he swore to tell the truth when he's on the stand. That's what he should do. He's a police officer. He's a sworn officer of the law, and he should tell the truth a court of law on the stand, which he did not do. That's plain and simple. That's as far as it's cut and dry. All right. Well, I, you know, technically I have no argument for that, and I wouldn't try to make an argument. I appreciate your call, and I understand your point. I just hope you'll consider mine and how you might answer such a question yourself. I'm Art Bell. This is Coast to Coast. Taking calls on the wild card line at 702-727-1295. That's 702-727-1295. First-time callers can reach Art Bell at 702-727-1222. 702-727-1222. 
now, here again, Art Bell. Once again, here I am. Good morning. It is great to be here. Some of the news of the morning is certainly not great. And again, Daniel Brinkley is in the hospital with an aneurysm bleeding on the right side of his brain. And Daniel, if you want me to come there, I will. Get that word to Daniel. Anyway, um, good morning, everybody. As you well know, the weather situation is worsening. There is an El Nino coming. They've never seen the lights of which they have never seen before. It's very, very, very serious, and it's going to produce terrible storms. And I would like to suggest that every single one of you should have the Beijing radio in your home. It's a way of getting information when the power goes out. And you will continue to get information. The Beijing radio should be part of every single person's emergency equipment. Food, water, light, whatever you can scrounge together to have around, you ought to have. After listening to yesterday's program, I don't see how you can feel any other way. And information is part of that. Reliable information. And that will come from the, uh, the Beijing radio. It has a crank on the side inside a very interesting patented uh, mechanism that in the future is going to be used for flashlights, computers, to operate all kinds of things. It's called the Bayless Clockwork Generator. And you turn the crank on this amazing radio for 30 seconds, and it plays on AM, FM, or a numerous shortwave bands for 30 minutes. It plays at full room volume. Full room volume. It's a full-size portable it comes from South Africa, manufactured in South Africa. Trevor Bayliss in uh, Great Britain invented this mechanism. It was originally intended for third world nations where power is interrupted frequently or non-existent. Uh, but it sounds like it has a pretty good use here, wouldn't you say? Bob Crane has them. They're $119.95. It's the best money you ever spent. Call Bob Crane in the morning at 7.30 and get one on the way. 1-800-522-8863. That's 1-800-522-8863. It is, of course, the C. Crane Company. Now, I suppose you know what this is, right? We've been previewing this because I use it as bumper music all the time. It is Cusco. C-U-S-C-O. They're a German group. And this is a Puramac 3, the one I have been waiting a very long time for. I've been talking to you about it. It's called Nature, Spirit, and Pride. And the cut you're hearing now is called Ghost Dance. For a limited time, the people at Higher Octave have got a special new release just for my listeners. You can order Cusco's new Apermac 3 album on CD for $15.98. Best money you ever spent, $15.98. Or, if you want it on cassette, $9.98. Just call 1-800-562-8283. Now... If you happen to be one of the first lucky 25 callers on any individual night, your copy will be autographed by Cusco's own Michael Holm. 
You can have a limited edition boxed set that contains all three Cusco CDs. Now, I really recommend this. A Burmac 1, 2, and 3 covers about 90% of the bumper music I play. And there you get an autographed poster. The, the combined price for that is $39.95. The beautiful box set is not available in stores, actually. I love that line. In other words, you can only get it here. What a great gift idea for you Cusco lovers. Don't miss out on these special offers. Once again, Cusco's new Apermac 3, $15.98 CD or $9.98 cassette. Or the limited edition Apermac Collection 3 CD box set for $39.95. You want to hear something really cool? Before the release of this record, this uh, CD... The most amazing thing has occurred simply because I was playing it on, you know, as bumper music on this program. You're not going to believe this, uh, but I just received word that the debut position for this cut, Ghost Dance, actually for the CD, um, in the New Age list that they keep nationwide, it debuted at number eight. I said number eight before it was even released. I was the only one in the whole nation playing it. <laughs> not bad, folks. Not bad at all. Again, that number is 1-800-562-8283. Mention the name Art Bell. Are you having arthritis pain? Would you like to stop that pain in your joints now? Glucosamine and chondroitin sulfate can help with the arthritis assist formula. You can get them at a fraction of what you pay in stores. Plus, the Arthritis Assist formula contains another revolutionary nutrient that's helped many people in Europe. Gelatin. Gelatin's full of the same kind of protein found in cartilage, the stuff that cushions your joints so they don't hurt. As we age, most of us get arthritis and our cartilage begins getting brittle. Studies show that gelatin nutritionally supports cartilage regeneration. Gelatin along with glucosamine and chondroitin sulfate, are found in the Arthritis Assist formula. Stop those aches and pains without drugs by using all-natural Arthritis Assist. Here's the offer. Order a 90-day supply of Arthritis Assist, and you'll get a pain relief cream that provides immediate relief to your joints absolutely free. Call 1-800-232-5665. It's guaranteed to work with your money back, and you can't get it in stores. Call now. 1-800-2325-665. You've got nothing to lose but the pain. Probably be a very good time for you to give a good thought to Daniel Brinkley. Is what I'm thinking. Boy, when everything's just going all right, life comes along and kicks you right in the ass, doesn't it? Get well, Daniel. All right, here's some more reaction. Uh, quite varied, I would say, to the uh, Mark Furman interview we did tonight, which I thought was very good. 
Good morning, Art. The image the media created of Mark Furman during the trial is not at all consistent with what I'm hearing this morning. As the major media has a tremendous impact on the gullible American belief system, when, if ever, will we have the truth in media coverage? Great show. Take care. Steve, State Line, Nevada, listening to 780-KOH. That's one. Here's another. Mr. Bell, I was completely and absolutely appalled by the interview you conducted with Mark Furman. You treated a liar as if he were a saint. As a black male, I knew he had used the term. I knew he was lying when he said it. My instinct tells me that there were other lies told as well. He stated, and you agreed, that he used these statements as part of a screenplay. That I believe to be true, yes. If this was the case, why didn't he say that when they asked him, had he ever said the word? Once they knew he did. Instead, he pleads the fifth. Come on. Ask him how many times he's seen an innocent man or woman take the fifth. Well, I have two responses for you. One is, did you miss the part, sir? It says goodbye. The only way he signs it, he doesn't sign it. It says goodbye. Did you miss the part where he had worked to free uh, a black man falsely accused of a crime? Is that the act of a racist? Now, that's a reasonable question. Did that information ever get into the trial? No, it didn't. Technically, did he lie? Yes. Technically, he did. And in my opinion, it might have cost uh, the trial. That might have been it. I, I said so at the time, and I say so now. However, if in the spirit of the question, in the real spirit of the question... I saw no evidence uh, produced that he had used the word in any context other than that of a fictional con uh, context. And if you were to indict every author who had done that, uh, there would be a lot of people indicted, uh, I would say. I do have a question. Uh, something that I have never really quite understood. When, uh, obviously, um, it would be awful in the line of duty, and really police officers are always on duty in the strictest sense, for a police officer uh, to use the word nigger in a derogatory manner toward a black man, one thing I've never understood, maybe a black person can tell me. Why do black people consistently use that word to each other? It obviously has some different connotation that I don't properly understand. But black men are always calling themselves each other, hey nigger. You hear it on the street. It's got a different connotation somehow. It means something different. Now, you don't hear people in the white community saying, Hey, whitey. 
or hey, white trash, or hey, you know, whatever derogatory term could be used to describe a white person and insult them racially. You don't hear white people doing that to each other. And yet you hear blacks doing that to, each, uh, to, to themselves all the time. So there must be some very different connotation when blacks use it, that word than when whites use it. And I have never fully understood that, and I don't now. I don't understand. Why is that used? Perhaps somebody in the black community can tell me why that is used. Uh, West of the Rockies, you're on the air. Hello. Yes, this is Art Bell. Yes. Art, this is Nancy calling from Missoula. Hello, Nancy. Hi. Two things. Real quick, I want to um, recommend a book to you about time travel. Okay. It's an excellent one, the best one I've ever read. It's by a man named Patrick O'Leary called Door Number Three. <laughs> Fabulous read. I like, I like the title already, Door it's Number a, Three. It's an incredible read. Also, I want to um, say to you that, um, you know, it has been prophesied that at this time when the major earth changes start and we go through this period that a lot of people will be leaving the planet in different ways, especially a lot of people in the light. Yes. And I'm wondering if that's what we're starting to see and praying that Daniel is not one of those. My prayers go out to him. I've read all of his books, and he is an incredible human being, and it would be a loss to lose him, especially now. I've never met anybody like Daniel. No, he's, he's an amazing human being. He's truly a saint. I agree with you, and, and I, uh, I, I don't know what to say. Uh, pray. Uh, I am. Um, this thing with Diana, surprisingly, um, I was really amazed at my own emotions and feelings with that. Yeah, I haven't figured that one out yet at all. Well, I believe she was truly a light, too, and had she been around longer, we might have seen more of that. Maybe that's right. Maybe people recognized something very specially different about her. That's what I truly I believe. I with, I don't know, something special. That there when are, the light is gone, people realize that that really was a bright light that we no longer have. Yep, you've got it. Thank, thank you very much. I, I've been working really hard on that. The reaction to Diana's death, tragic as it is, is utterly, totally disproportionate to the place that she occupied in the minds and hearts of the American people. Or you could argue that's absolutely wrong, obviously, now. But it, it was not wrong up until the moment of her death. So I'm still trying to figure that one out, too. First time caller line, you're on the air. Hi. Uh, hello, Art. Yes, sir. Uh, this is Dave from the Bay Area. Hello, Dave. And uh, enjoy your show tremendously and have sent my energies off to Damien. But I wanted to make a, a comment or two on your program tonight. Yep. Uh, Mr. Furman, you know, this narrow focus on the N-word, I, I can't help but remember those women and a couple other witnesses that spelled out really rabidly racist stuff out of his mouth. And I really don't think that should be forgotten. And I'm kind of sorry that you chose to have him on the show. Well, I don't remember direct testimony other than 
of his use of that word other than uh, in that screenplay? Oh, the, those two women both testified, a blonde and a red-haired, and then there were also two blacks. Ito uh, limited to only four. I'm a little nervous. <laughs> no, that's all right. Um, and I'm sorry you didn't. I'll, I'll interview. Problem. Look, look. I will interview anybody if I haven't proven that over the years. Then. Um, yeah, that's okay. I understand, and I really like your show. Why did? Why, I mean, or let me ask you this: Why did you sit there and listen? Well, I wasn't going to. I was going to boycott it, and I thought, I well, <laughs> I thought, well, maybe I should listen and see what he says. There is no way, really. There is no way to know if somebody is really racist in their heart or not. Uh, I just, I don't know how you know that. I mean, I talked about this during the trial. People use words. And and you may be right. There may have been other testimony. I can't remember. I sort of vaguely remember. Two women. And yeah, what came out was terrible. Yeah, I, I vaguely remember. I vaguely remember something about that. But anyway, whether or not he did use the word, it's obvious he did. Technically or really, he lied. Um. You really don't know if a person is truly a racist person or not. And, I, you know, I talked to him about that, this thin blue line. In other words, if you're policing in a community that's mainly black, I think it was, he said he was in Watts, right? Mm-hmm. Early on for a lot of years in Watts. And you see black crime day in and day out and day in and day out. Pretty soon, in your mind, whether you like it or not, whether you began thinking about it in the beginning or not, you start to identify black people with crime. Now, that's one thing, but then there's this thin blue line that you can cross over that, that, that when you become a racist. Yes, well, your points are well taken, and were it not for that other testimony, you know, I would say yes, true. But even, um, if, even if you use the word, sir, that doesn't not necessarily... The word. I'm talking about the stuff that those two women were talking about. Don't you remember about, you know, black, black people being burned alive? Don't you remember that? I think that was from the... Uh, was from the one woman, and then there was another woman. Yeah, but that, that, that was from... Yes, but that was from the... Uh, that wasn't anything I, to do with the screenplay. I think it was. No, it wasn't. It now, was, maybe my memory is faulty, but I don't think so. She met him with the Marines and all that business. It had nothing to do with the screenplay. I remember an encounter in a bar. Do you remember the woman... Is that the woman you're talking about who had a casual encounter with... Uh, with I don't think so. I think she met him with friends. Well, then I, I, I have forgotten but it. Anyway, I, uh, the only other thing is uh, I wanted to bring up this issue about you got a call the other day, not a call, a fax, from somebody that worked at Area 51. Yes, and I, you know what? I've had a series now of three calls from this person, um, and not once has it been a live person. Each time it has been some sort of messaging service. And each time he said, well, I cannot speak yet. I'll call you at such and such a time, and then I get another recording. So, All I want to say to you is be careful. Uh, what's his name? Courtney Brown. Was that his name got set up? It sounded a little too pat. Well, it might be. You know, uh, you know but I'm, again, anybody of great interest, I will put on the air, and I'll yeah. let you guys decide for yourself yeah. whether he's a nutcase or, you know, yeah. credible. But I, I say it in this sense. I'm sure, just like they've gone after many people, and I'm talking about the rogue elements of the government, have gone after many people, I am sure they would like to nail you. 
so I'm just saying be careful. Stephen Greer's got cancer. His assistant's got cancer. I know. Carla Turner, who was connecting negative aliens with the uh, with the military, got cancer. The congressman from uh, New Mexico has got cancer. Bob Guccione's wife has cancer. Yeah, but she, I'm talking you, about people that were giving them trouble. That new guy from New Mexico. Oh, well, now, wait a minute. Yeah. Hold it. Slow up. Okay. Do you know what magazine Bob Guccione's wife published? Well, Bob Guccione's Pet House. Yeah, but also no. another one. No, I don't. You ever, you ever heard of Omni? Yeah, that's a good point. All of a sudden, it's gone. And all of a sudden, this distributor that was was publishing all these New Age books and UFO books is gone. Yep. They're playing hardball. And they well, I don't know that to be true. I, I'll tell you, behind the scenes... I'm doing some work in this area, all right? Mm -hmm. I'm not prepared to say anything about it yet. Uh, you and I have just said enough. The people, right. the people can draw their own conclusions, but behind the scenes, I'm doing some work on this. The reason why I bring this up is before I thought they couldn't touch somebody that was too high profile, but if they can give people cancer... Well, I look. All right. Um, I all right. With a pickup truck. Yeah, I, I know. I create the right frequencies. Yeah. All right. Thank you. I look. I'm not prepared to go out where you just went. Uh, what I told you is I am aware of the numbers. I'm aware of the people involved. And I'm, I've been looking at this uh, behind the scenes. And will continue to. I need to talk to uh, Dr. Greer. Anyway, I, I don't really want to talk about this uh, on the air a whole lot more right now, thank you. Uh, just let me do what I can with this, and when the story and the time is right, if it is, uh, we'll talk about it. From the high desert, this is Coast to Coast AM. at 1-800-618-8255 1-800-618-8255 East of the Rockies at 1-800-825-5033 1-800-825-5033 This is the CBC Radio Network Once again, if you haven't heard, if you know Danian Brinkley Danian's in the hospital intensive care with a bleeding aneurysm on the right side of his brain the colors of the rainbow, so pretty in the sky, are also on the faces. So, just on the chance, you know, that it might work, prayer or two, thought, something. Oh, boy. Kicks you right in the ribs, huh?
I would hope that uh, his friend and our mutual friend, Dr. Moody, has been notified. If not, I made a call during one of the breaks. We'll see. You know, if it's his time, he'll be called and he'll go. And the thing, I guess, to keep in mind is that Danion was never afraid of it. And just wait and see what happens. That's hard news. Hard news, you know. I don't like getting this kind of news while I'm on the air. So you will have to excuse me if I seem a little um, put off. At any rate, uh, know it, Daniel. I'll come if you wish me to come. If you want me there, I'll be there. Just say it through uh, through your cousin or uh, through uh, Raymond or whoever. Or call me. Let's talk about the miracle of web TV. It is that. The web really is something, you know. I don't know if you're on the web yet, uh, but if you're not, you should be. For the sake of your family and your children, there is no greater information source in the world right now than the Internet. In the case of what we've got to offer you for sale, it's all in a little black box. It's not a big computer system, a little black box. It has six built-in email addresses, parental controls, awesome graphics, easy-to-use remote controller, optional wireless keyboard. And when you sign up at $19.95 a month, which means unlimited use, you get free upgrades Recently, they've added about 16. More are on the way. And the best deal of all is right now, they've got now the new Hewlett-Packard color printer for web TV. Hooray. It is the good one, the fastest in its class. The Lewis brothers have the printer cable and adapter, all for $289.99. And believe me, that's less than you'll pay in stores. Or an even better package deal. Here it is, Web TV, the unit itself, the wireless keyboard, the entire printer setup I just described. In other words, a $700 value. And I have no idea how they're doing this, but they're selling it for $579.95. $579.95. Mention that price in stores. Try it. Go ahead. See if you can get that price on that package in any store. They'll laugh you right out of the store. Call the Lewis Brothers at one 800-659-2669. That's 1-800-659-2669. They are the people who have the best deal on web TV, and if you're not on the Internet, isn't it about time? In today's world of shaky currencies, massive borrowing, and higher interest rates, it might be time to get a little old-fashioned with your money. Time to buy gold. Most investors know that gold is a good investment during times of inflation. Actually, gold is a hedge against all forms of economic uncertainty. Gold's value went up 800% during the inflationary 70s, 15% during the market crash of 87, and 70% during the Great Depression. The Swiss refer to gold as the ultimate currency since it retains its purchasing power when all else fails. Eventually, all paper currencies inflate and fail. 
Even the celebrated Swiss franc has lost over 50% of its buying power since 1945. No paper currency is immune. Gold, on the other hand, will buy everything today that it bought 20, 50, even 100 years ago. So, if you're uncomfortable about the ever-growing government debt, perpetual deficits, rising taxes, and their effect on your personal net worth, it's time to face facts. Call North American Trading at 1-800-359-4255 and ask for their free information on buying gold safely and privately. Remember, 1-800-359-4255, North American Trading, America's trusted name in private hard assets. You don't have to be rich to own gold, just smart. All right, another uh, 20 minutes, so let's uh, keep going here. East of the Rockies, you're on the air. Hello. Yes, it's good to hear from you. Well, it's good to hear from you. Okay, well, I'm glad to be here. I wanted to uh, just talk to you about that lady you had on from Atlantis about two weeks ago. Oh, yes. Uh, I have a gentleman that I work with. He's in his 70s. He's, uh, his son lives in Alaska, and he knows a man by the name of uh, Colonel Norman Vaughn, who's 91, and he lives in Alaska. Now, he happens to be the only surviving member left over from uh, the birds party, both of his expeditions to uh, Antarctica. Boy, he'd be an interesting interview. Well, he, he would not be hard for you to get a hold of if you got some of your contacts up there in uh, Alaska. I have contacts in Alaska. Well, his name is Norman Vaughn. Norman and, Vaughn, huh? And uh, uh, the Vaughn Mountain in Antarctica is named after him. But anyway, to make a long story short, Bill, who I work with, is in his 70s. Now, both these two characters are like your friend up there who climbs the towers still at 76. Vaughn is planning on going on a 900-mile dog sled trip uh, through the Arctic here pretty soon, and he wanted Bill to come up there and go with him. <laughs> but anyway, to make a long story short, Bill and I were listening to this, this lady on the radio, and she talked about how Bird flew his plane into the inner earth down in Antarctica. Yes. Well, he called, Bill called his son up in uh, Alaska and said, get a hold of Norman and see what he has to say about all this. Right. Well, let me tell you, Norman, uh, from what I understand, we heard from his son about a week later, and he has had uh, about uh, 100 letters and I don't know how many phone calls from people all over the country calling him saying that this lady's talking about Bird going to the center of the earth through a hole in uh, the Antarctica. Well, now, wait a minute. I'm not sure she said the center of the Earth. Well, okay, maybe not the center of the Earth, but she said the inner Earth. Inner Earth, yes. A big That's hole that he flew into the inner Earth. Right. And he got all kind of calls and letters, over 100 people wanting to know, you know, what the scoop is. Well, he says it is a bunch of bull, but he would still make it interesting. Uh, he would, yeah. And uh, But the thing was, I was surprised on how many people had already contacted him in that short period of time. Well, we've got to know a, his you know, end of it. I know, we've got a big audience. Uh, so I, I have learned that I've got to be careful about anything I say. <laughs> but, uh, hey, listen, where are you? Monroe, Louisiana. Monroe. 1440 Talk Radio, depend on it. I once lived in Monroe. Oh, you did? Oh, yeah. I worked for KNOE. Okay, okay. I don't, know, I don't know if there's still KNOE down well, there or not. Well, uh, they have a big TV station, and they also have an, uh, uh, a little country station on the AM dial. And uh, they have a, well, a it used to be, okay, it used to be a rock and roll station. Okay, well, that's on the FM side. Well, no, well, no it was AM then. Okay. This was a long time ago, my friend. Okay. And it was pretty interesting because 
I had never lived in the real deep south before, even though I was born in North Carolina. I've, I've been more or less uh, all over the country, but never in the real deep south, and that was my first experience. And I, I remember answering the request lines down there, and people would ask me to play songs, and I couldn't understand a word they were saying. I mean, their accents, I was so unused to their accents, I couldn't understand a word they well, were saying. Well, that was what, back in the 50s? <laughs> yeah, that was a long time ago. Well, you know, with, with modern television now, uh, we've lost a lot of that. Now, we still have an accent, That's which right. I'm sure a lot of you people will think that I do. Well, no, you, you, you have one, but it's entirely understandable. Well, I had, uh, at this other job that I had, my boss's mother called up there looking for him. And she was in her 70s, and she had one of these old-fashioned Southern Bell accents. Mm -hmm. And I didn't realize who it was at first. And when she called asking for my boss, I thought it was somebody pulling my leg. <laughs> now, it was one of those true, hey, darling, type of things. I know. I can understand where you're coming from with those old accents, but a lot of that is really fading away because of television. Uh, well, it was hard for me. I, I appreciate the call, sir. Thank you, and I'll follow up on uh, Norman Vaughn if I can. I mean, there were times when people would call up and ask me to play something or another, and I had no clue what they were saying to me. And I used to have to say, okay, we'll get it on. <laughs> After a while, of course, uh, you begin to become accustomed to the accents, and then you start hearing things correctly. But it took a while. It was kind of a shock to my system. West of the Rockies, you're on the air. Good morning. Oh, hi, Art. It's uh, Jay from Portland. Yes, hi. Uh, I, I wonder what happened to uh, my favorite caller, caller the Perfect Ten. She's a good long question. Time. She hasn't, she hasn't uh, managed to get through for a long time now. Yeah. But it's hard. Uh, there's a lot of people trying to get through. And and then I also think that like maybe like towards the the end of the the hour if, end of the hour if we all put out like the energy towards Danian. The, like like, like a, a healing energy towards them. Possibly it might work. I I want everybody to do that. Not just at the end of the hour. Yeah, but I think if we all all did like like a concentrated thing, say like at a, you know, uh, two fifty eight or or so. It's worth a try. Sure. And and, and the third thing, um, you, you keep you keep saying about about um, about scallion, um. I am positive, Art, that that he he had said in his last last uh, show with you, it was uh, he had said that that if the the, the the three part scenario does not come true, regardless by the end of '96, that California is going to be devastated and 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 that the quakes are going to happen. Now, see, I don't remember that. Yeah, I remember him saying that. No, again and again, he said the cycle has to complete. No, he didn't. And we, at, at the time that I talked to him, we were two-thirds of the way through that cycle. Do you remember right. that? Yes, but I'm telling you, Art, go, go back and check the tape. He, he did say that. He said if it, if it doesn't complete, complete that, regardless, by the end of 96, he had said that, that you know, the earthquakes are going to come in Southern California and the mass exodus is going to happen. Okay. I'm, uh, I'm, we're in disagreement, uh, but that's the way it is. I'll see if I can get hold of a tape. Yeah. All right? Thanks. Uh, I remember very distinctly questioning him about the cycle, and he said before that could happen, that cycle would have to complete. That's what I recall. And I recall diligently watching that cycle uh, go around once and then stop, go around twice, and then I began to get very concerned. 
and that is one of the junctures at which we had him on. And I don't ever recall him saying that no matter what with regard to the cycle, the following would happen. I, I don't recall that. It may be, but I don't recall it. Uh, first time caller line, you're on the air. Yeah, this is Jerry. I'm calling from Des Moines. Hi, Jerry. I think I'm the first person in Des Moines that's ever called you. Am I correct? No. No? Oh, I've listened to you for months now. I got, <laughs> I got started from a person that works at the zoo. He said, you've got to listen to this Art Bell. He talks about UFOs and everything that you're interested in. We oh. have a lot in common. I'm a Mason myself. You are? Yeah. How long have you been a Mason? How many years? Can't discuss it. Oh, I, I, I can. I, I've been six, going on 16 years. Okay. And uh, I listen to your show, and I find it very interesting. In fact, I taught a course out at Area College in Des Moines on, U, on UFOs. Really? And I picked you up on uh, what used to be called KIOA, and now they changed their call letters from KXTA. Are from, you familiar with the from, You changed from KXTA, or they are now KXTA? They used to be called KIOA. Uh-huh. And I used to be on the James Wayman Show, and I'd talk about UFOs, and they called me Information X. And I used to be on a lot of talk shows, and I've been in some of those old UFO magazines. Oh, yes? So um, we have a lot in common. I enjoy your show. I don't always believe everything I hear, but it's still... Well, either do I. No, but but who's to say that they're telling the truth, and who's to say that they're right or wrong? Okay, KXTK is our Des Moines affiliate. Yeah. 940 on the dial. 10,000 uh -huh. 10, watts, big time. Yes. And I tried to get your book at uh, Borders Bookstore, Hardy Har. Really? Yes, they're well, all sold out. Well, hound them. Hound them. Oh, I, I, you know, they said, well, we can, we can order it, so I'm going to do that. <laughs> but, uh, no, I, they said it's very popular. They knew exactly what I was talking about. I didn't think they would. And I thought, you know, I'm not Des Moines. They wouldn't know this. Yeah, right. They did. They said, oh, yes. They said, uh, we're all sold out. They said, we'll have to special order it for you. How many copies do you think you've sold so far? There's 100,000 in print. And still going. I don't, yeah, and still going. Uh, we're about to be on the bestseller list. How about that, huh? Now, here's other thing that's weird. I started getting interested in UFOs when I was five years old. Well, uh, I take it you've seen one. Yes. Uh, there are a lot of people in Des Moines did. Yeah. You saw well, it back in 1990. Yeah, that's all it takes. Now, listen, I've got to run. Thank you very much. You know, once you've seen one, it changes your entire life. How can it not? To me, there are only two possibilities with regard to UFOs. Either they are something that our own government has that is so advanced that we don't even have a hint. And not even close. I mean, you know, we've got stealth technology, the F-117. I can imagine a generation or two beyond that that we might have that might surprise us. But it would be a natural progression not something capable of defying gravity. What I saw defied gravity. Period. Twice defied gravity. That's all. So, two possibilities. One, we have something so far ahead of what our government has admitted that we have that if we were to find out about it, it would be a monstrous story and there would be questions about where we got that technology. Or two, we are being visited by people from elsewhere. It is one of those two things. And once you have seen this for yourself, if it doesn't change your life, you're pretty thick. 
as my fifth grade teacher used to tell me, you're thick. <laughs> I'll never forget her. East of the Rockies, you're on the air. Hello. Hi, Art. Uh, yeah, my thoughts and prayers are with uh, Daniel Brinkley. Good. Um, my mother was in the same situation, and it's not a good situation. No. Um, I do have a... It's, even, it's actually even worse in Daniel's case because... I know it is. You know, when you're, you're taking blood thinners? Right, right. Not good. It's not good at all. Um, you know, I, I do pray for him on that. Call toll-free 1-800-618-8255. Now, see, the way you just used not, it... All right, exactly, exactly. Is, 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 anyway, go ahead. Okay. All right, I'm gay. So... When someone says faggot, it depends on who you say it to and how you say it. Yeah. Um, in other words, within the black community, if you say it to a friend, you know, if they refer to their friend as a nigger, it's being on a familiar term, right? But if it's used in a negative okay, connotation... You're, okay, you're gay, right? Yes. You said, I you hate said so. The word. I right. hate the word faggot. All right, you hate, right, you hate the word faggot. Yes, uh, when, when you are with your friends, do you call each other faggots? Used to, when I was young. Don't do it now. I've never heard that. Of course, I'm not in the gay community, but right, I've, never, I've never heard that. Yeah, of we, use, we use the term. We call each other faggots. All right, I'm a, I'm a white person. I don't ever hear white people calling each other, hey, whitey, or hey, honky, or hey white trash or, you know, some derogatory term that would be attached to a white person. I don't ever hear that. In the 70s, I used honky. We did hear that. I'm in the Washington area. From, another, from white people to white people? Yes. Absolutely. I've never heard it. That doesn't mean it doesn't happen. I've never heard it. In urban areas, I mean, I mean, suburban areas, yes, you do do that. <laughs> Okay, well, live and learn, I suppose. I mean, but that's, I mean, so it is common. And it's just the way you use the word. But, and how familiar you are with the other person, um, you know, black on black, even a white person with a black person, you can call them a nigger. But you must be friends with them. I don't know. Boy, it's, in today's uh, atmosphere in today's society, out there. It's very, I mean, politically incorrect. Extremely politically incorrect. Uh, in today's atmosphere, I almost can't conceive. I, I, I suppose it could happen, but I, it's almost it's almost hard to uh, conceive of. I unfortunately I I'm a professional. I'm a customer service manager, and we had the issue come up at work. And believe me, when a customer calls a black person a nigger, it is not good, and the person is extremely upset. But that same person will refer to another individual of the same race, a good friend, as a nigger in common terms without any problem. But if it's used negatively, then there's a problem. All right. Well, in, in, let me just say this. In today's atmosphere, in today's world, it's really hard to imagine a situation between the races where that would be used and would be considered anything but a horrendous racist insult. 
Uh, my only curiosity was about why blacks use it themselves with each other. And uh, whites don't. I don't think Hispanics do. I don't know. We waste so much time on this racism thing. Period. It's such a horrendous waste of human energy. That's what I've always thought of it as. Just a plain waste of human energy. Do we need to hate so much? Do we really need to hate so much? It's almost like a need. Maybe it's part of the human condition. That you've got to hate. That you've got to have an enemy. Maybe that's why we have wars, you know. So we can put all kinds of different people of different colors in ditches together and they can observe they all have the same color blood when they're hit with bullets. Well, the Rockies. You're on the air. Hello. Good morning, Art. Rich from San Jose, California. How are you? Um, well, it's... Um, well, anyway... Good I know. My thoughts and prayers are going out to Daniel, and I, I enjoy him so much when he's on the show. And uh, just hope he gets well. I hope so, too. I had a, I had a baby sister, uh, 31 years old, with an aneurysm. We lost her five years ago. I'm sorry. And uh, that was at the base of her neck, but... Uh, you know, I, my thoughts and prayers are, uh, are uh, uh, on a brighter note. I got to talk to Mr. Fidget the other night. Oh, you <laughs> talked to Mr. Fidget? He, he called me. I gave him my phone number when I uh, when I sent him for a couple of fidgets there, and uh, and uh, he gave me a call the next day. And surprised me. It's like uh, it's like hearing from a celebrity, huh? Yeah, yeah, he's a pretty nice Mr. guy. Mr. Fidget on the phone. All right, listen, um, my program is over, so okay, you you do it. Well, good night uh, throughout the world and all co from coast to coast and from Rich and San Jose and Art Bell. And, uh, that, that's it. Good night, all.